Whatever happened to my Transylvania twist? It's now the mash. It's now the monster mash. The monster mash. And it's a graveyard smash. It's now the mash. Hello and welcome to One Week, One Year, a podcast where we watch and discuss a year of film history every episode, starting from 1895, the dawn of cinema. And this year, this episode, we're on 1931, the 30s, the talkie era. Isn't it great? I'm one of your hosts, Chris Zelli. I'm a film projectionist, and joining me as always is... I am Glenn Covell. I am a filmmaker. We're, uh, we're getting into it. Yeah. It's all, except for one, it's all talkies, and this one movie that isn't a talkie is decidedly not a talkie. Yeah. But uh, we'll get to it. Uh, before we get into it, if you're watching this on YouTube, be aware that you could listen to this audio-wise on your podcast. If you're listening on the podcast, you can look at our dumb faces on YouTube and get a little bit of extra information there. I'm sorry for calling your face dumb, Glenn. No, it's it's correct. <laughs> anyway, how's it how's it going, Glenn? Uh, it's going. You know, still uh, looking for work stuff, but I've got some uh, sort of side projects to work on, uh, including this one. And uh, I finally got around to start playing Fallout Four recently because I was feeling left out because everyone's playing Starfield. Hmm. And uh, Fallout Four, hot take, good game. <laughs> Are you like, um, are you friends with actual like actual gamers who play actual games, and so people around you are playing Starfield? I I think I've only actually talked to one friend of mine who's like actively playing Starfield. I need gamer friends. I need to get on a Discord. <laughs> yeah. Uh, speaking of video games, I just got a handheld video game console called the Playdate, which has a dope cranking knob on the side. Um. <laughs> It's uh it's like an it's like a black and white indie video game Game Boy that has a crank. Uh and nice. then they d- they deliver two games to you every week uh oh. as part of like seasons of games and I'm loving it. I uh I am habitually a person who doesn't uh play as many video games as I want to and I feel like this movie style of like a drip mm. of of video games really uh, really helps me out, and I've yeah. been I've been cranking away all all, over, <laughs> all around town. <laughs> uh, other than video games, uh, just uh, had my first nightmare about the Denver Film Festival. So that's oh, uh, <laughs> that's that's, that's when you that's when you know something is uh, it's when you know something is important to you is right when you have a nightmare about it. Right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah we have in in the at, at Denver Film, we've got a whiteboard that says days until diff. 54, 53, oh 52. <laughs> Yikes. Yeah. Now that we got those uh, those pleasantries out of the way. Those let's, pesky let's, pleasantries. Let's talk about the Depression. We all we all love the Depression. Yeah. Everyone's uh, favorite time. <laughs> so uh, why don't we give ourselves a little context for the time that these movies are coming out. And uh, let's hear about what's going on in the news. Glenn, take it away. The news of the year, 1931. At UC Berkeley, Ernest Lawrence invents the cyclotron, particle accelerator. The end of the Spanish king. A new republic is formed in Madrid. The Empire State Building is completed. The tallest building in the world. Notorious mob boss Al Capone is convicted of tax evasion and sentenced to 11 years in the big house. That's prison. 
The automobile manufacturer of Porsche is founded in Stuttgart. The Empire of Japan invades Manchuria. And that is some of the news that happened in 1931. Some of it. Yeah. Leaving out the, the more complicated and more dour things. Yeah. We oh, don't, don't want to talk about an earthquake that killed a couple thousand people. Yeah. Uh, Great Depression going strong. People yeah. don't have money, don't have jobs. It's a, it's a rough time out there for not just Americans. For the whole, I mean, most of the uh, most of the world is feeling the 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 hit. It's a great time for capitalism. Uh, sure. Um, <laughs> hey, you know, a pretty great year for movies, though. Maybe. Oh yes, yeah. I uh, I liked a lot of these. Pretty significant year for movies. If you, a lot of like. A uh, lot of iconic stuff in 1931. For a lot sure. Of, like real, just the stuff that's in every montage uh, <laughs> that people can, that everyone can recognize. We love There's those some, montages. Yeah, but we'll uh, we'll get into it. I guess I don't know. You want to start with our one silent picture? Sure. Uh, and that's uh, one of the most famous Charlie Chaplin films, City Lights. Yeah. I mean, this is, I think, the first Chaplin movie I ever saw, and I think the first oh. silent silent movie I ever saw, also. Oh, wow. Which is kind of funny, because it is so notably, like, not from the silent era. Right. It's like, everyone else has moved on. Everyone else is like, nope, we're doing talkies now. Even the other, like, big silent comedians. And Chaplin, one, I think, because he had a big ego, and he was like, and could throw his weight around, and could do whatever he wanted. True. Was like, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to keep making silent movies. But I think that's kind of a cool thing about that is we get to kind of see for the further development of silent movies into the sound era because there's one guy still making them. Yeah. And this does do some things that silent that could only work as a silent movie in the sound mm-hmm. era, which I think is is neat about this film. Like it's a silent movie that is not ignoring sound, the potential of sound uh, uh, technology, yeah, and instead is using sound technology as like what? How can we advance the form of silent movies using this? Which I thought mm-hmm. was cool. Yeah. Uh, in particular, um, there are some jokes and kind of um, I don't know plot moments that happen t- that are told via sound. Yeah. And yeah. and it's the kind of moments that would not work without a synchronized soundtrack. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this movie is silent and it still is making better use of sound than uh, the coconuts. <laughs> <laughs> In particular, I mean, speaking of speaking of food items, one of the first sync sound things that you hear is a very Peanuts style, uh, Peanuts yeah. adult style people talking and it's like, well, it's it's like a it's like a kazoo sound, right? Almost. And I'm wondering if that jo- it's only really in that opening scene. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if that is Charlie Chaplin making fun of like bad dialogue recording of like this is what you sound like trying to have people talk in movies is like. I mean, it's possible, but I, I it kind of seems like it, it's some sort of bloviating uh, politicians, right? And yeah. so it's probably 
talking about the the substancelessness of what but they're I'm, saying. I'm wondering if that's also kind of a meta joke. If Charlie Chaplin himself is almost just like, see, talking is dumb. You don't want that in your movie. Look at this <laughs> dummy. Like you can't even understand what he's saying. That's what you <laughs> and then like. and then look at this cute little tramp. Who, yeah, who look at this. Nobody look at this wants little, to hear what he's saying. Look at this little stinker. That's me. <laughs> Yeah, he's uh he is literally unveiled. There's like he's like sitting on a statue and they pull mm-hmm. a curtain off of him and it's sort mm-hmm. of revealing the tramp to the to the audience that way, which is kind of a fun little flourish. Yeah, and there's some good so it's it's begins with the statue unveiling, uh which is the way that the tramp is unveiled, but uh the tramp is sleeping underneath the uh the cover on the statue. Uh, and then there's some, uh, so there's some fun physical comedy with him, kind of like there's a sword in it and it stabs him <laughs> in the pants and he gets stuck on the sword and all this kind of stuff of, uh, you know, statue bits. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it's funny that I feel like this movie already, even though it's only being made a couple years after the last few silent comedies that we watched, it already feels like such kind of a throwback. Yeah. It made me wistful for another era, right? It if it, it's there's there's been, been such a big shift to sync sound that a movie like this that's like silent slapstick goodness and is like one of the best. It's like I feel like upon revisiting these old silent movies and and watching more Buster Keaton and more Harold Lloyd, I feel like Chaplin sort of lowered a bit in my kind of uh, rankings, I guess. Mm-hmm. Also, just reading more about him as a person and being like, ah, gross. But um, <laughs> watching this, I was like, oh, yeah, this movie is genius. Like, it's, I don't know, I, had you seen this movie before? I have not, no. Okay, I had seen it once before, and I liked it back then, and I, it was a nice, it held up for me. I was like, oh, yeah, this movie is great. This is, like, one of the, one of, like, the masterpieces of silent movies, I think. Wow, I I uh, <laughs> maybe it's because I've seen a no- like a lot of Chaplin schmaltz by this point, but like I think it I think it works in this movie in a way that it doesn't in a lot of his earlier movies. Yeah, yeah, he finally tuned in on it. He got like all the levels right, <laughs> all the ingredients sort of like come together in like an, a a really nice stew in this movie where it's like it's both very silly and very funny. And I think the heartfelt, more poignant moments also really land in a way that I don't know if... I think the the kid, they mostly did. And then, like, some of the stuff in the Gold Rush I thought was I thought was good. Gold Rush is a little harsh. I like the circus. Um, I, think, I think the circus the cir- works the quite The circus, well. actually, yeah. I think, but as he's going, like, as he continues to make movies, he's, like, dialing that stuff in a little bit more each time. Yeah, true. And I think, yeah, just honing... I mean, he's been playing the tramp for uh, 16 years at this point. Yeah. And, and so he, you can still see him honing it more and more to this mm-hmm. like perfect character just before it's taken away. Because, yeah, Charlie, um, or as he's known in the director credits of this, Charles, <laughs> did, did not really think that the tramp would work with, uh, with sound. And they mm. did some tests with the tramp talking and it felt weird so they didn't do it yeah um i'm sure i mean i guess he kind of plays the tramp in um great dictator that's a very different kind of movie 
Mm-hmm. Um, I'm looking forward to rewatching that also. I've never yeah, seen Modern Times, which I think is his last. That's like a partially silent movie. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen it, but I think I feel like Chaplin is the the only one of those like big three silent comedians, right? Like Chaplin, Lloyd, Keaton, who I think his most famous movies are made uh, in the 30s or 40s. Like I suppose that's in true. the sound yeah. era. And a kind of his best stuff too. Like mm-hmm. I like I think uh this movie, City Lights, is his best movie that I've seen. I haven't seen Modern Times, but um or Limelight. Of everything that I've seen, I've seen a lot at this point. This is like clearly my favorite of his movies. Hmm. Interesting. And that's I don't know, it's just kind of odd that it's like one that he was allowed to keep making silent movies, but then also that it's like he made his best one. Like after <laughs> everyone else, after everyone else had already abandoned it, kind of. It's not really even allowed. It's just that Charlie Chaplin was loaded, and he could do yeah. whatever he wanted yeah, exactly. because he owned his own studio. Yeah, and yeah, the class. And he spent like a year and a half making this movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they, he spent a long time. I mean, they they shut down for part of it, I think, right? But um, yeah, but like there were there was there were scenes that they spent like. They did 300 takes on yeah. the on the first yeah. scene where he meets the flower girl. He was wearing people Prompting down. Prompting her to quit and then get rehired. Yeah. There was a lot of... Um, yeah, I, I, Charlie Chaplin was a bit of a Kubrick in a lot of ways mm-hmm. as far as just like being a bit of a um, task perfectionist, yeah. taskmaster director. And rubbed a lot of people the wrong way in a lot of contexts but i think in particular this movie which really just mm-hmm. seems like him as an unbridled dictatorial director <laughs> yeah yeah um i found a quote from uh virginia Cheryl, who plays uh the blind girl i think that is her name in the movie is the blind girl who like later in life uh said i didn't like charlie and charlie didn't like me and then refused to elaborate more on that <laughs> I mean, what else do you need to know? <laughs> um, yeah. I do think Virginia Cheryl is very good in this movie. Mm-hmm. You know, the the best kind of silent acting, which is, like, not overdoing it, but being very expressive through, like, gesture and expression and not, and, you know, doing it in a pretty naturalistic way. For it's subtle. It's subtle. Yeah. I mean, she's playing, um, yes, like you said, she's playing a blind person, and so... That is the instigation of a lot of the mm-hmm. plot, which is chiefly that um, the tramp falls in love with her, but it is under this context of her mistaking that he is a guy who has a car, so he's rich. Yeah. Uh, and, but then, helpfully, he befriends a, a millionaire who mm-hmm. lets him kind of pretend to be rich for various contrivances, uh, and so he can... But we only, some... but only yeah. when the millionaire is drunk. When he's sober, he doesn't remember the tramp at all. <laughs> uh, and so this tension is just uh, him. I don't know. It's not like he's trying to deceive her necessarily. It's just that like he is trying to support her as if he were a millionaire, mm-hmm. uh, and he wants to pay for her surgery to be able to see again. Yeah. A lot of the movie, like you're saying, is. Uh, there is a millionaire who he saves from killing himself while he's drunk and uh, by throw, th- tying a rock to himself and then throwing himself into the 
into the river. Uh, and then the millionaire is so thankful that he says, have a car, uh, <laughs> be my friend. I'll take you out on town. <laughs> uh, and then promptly forgets as soon as he's sober every time. Yeah. Uh, a lot of great hijinks in this. A lot of great, mm-hmm. just like classic, classic bits. Uh, restaurant bits, uh, seltzer bottles, uh, eating spaghetti, that sort of thing. <laughs> Swallowing a whistle, another good sound gag when he yes. accidentally swallows a whistle and then every time he breathes in, he whistles. Yeah, he's like hiccuping whistles. And uh, yeah. that's a joke that would not really work without a sync soundtrack. Yeah, or, I mean, someone just right there with a whistle getting the timing right every time. I mean, you'd have to trust that that would be the case in thousands of theaters. Exactly. Yeah, it's not like he's lying to her, but he's not really correcting her by saying, I'm not actually rich. Right. Whenever the millionaire sobers up and forgets that he knows him, he has to go find work. She's also quite poor, and she gets a letter from her landlord uh, saying that if you don't give me twenty-two dollars, uh, yeah. <laughs> but by tomorrow, then you're out on the you're out on your ass. Yeah, yeah. One of the more famous parts of this movie is that he uh, he decides to um, become a boxer for a single match. A guy comes up to him and is like, "Hey, we'll split like we'll split the money at the end. I won't hurt you too bad." But then that guy finds out that the cops are after him and he has to run. And so a different guy comes in and replaces him. That's like the best boxer anyone's ever seen who just kind of shows up randomly off the street um, but is very good at punching and we get this whole extended uh, very well choreographed uh, boxing match with him like hiding behind the referee the whole time and like getting mm-hmm. punches in here and there um, yeah like very like synchronized kind of ducking behind the referee almost yeah. like um, uh, was it Sherlock Jr. where uh, Buster is like tracing the route oh, yeah. like, behind the mm-hmm. guy, like walking at the exact same rate yeah. or whatever. Yeah. That kind of deal, but uh, but with uh, yes, a, a referee in the way, and and so Charlie actually is, or the Tramp is like doing okay in the boxing match, but mm-hmm. it kind of kind of ends up going against him. It, it's a, it's a long match, and there's like a yeah. lot of hijinks, including more sound jokes of um the bell the, the bell yeah mm-hmm. yeah uh he gets the the rope for the bell kind of tied around him and so <laughs> whenever he moves the match ends and then he sits down at, as the match ends and it rings the bell and it starts again it's good yeah. it's good stuff that scene is another one that it's like i see in like every oscars montage of like the history of film there's always thrown in a shot of the boxing match from City Lights, or it's it comes up a lot. This movie has a couple of those things in it where it's like, I don't know, this movie's. I feel like if if you want like a go to Charlie Chaplin movie to like pull clips from, it's usually this one. Yeah, um, probably because it's the best one. You know, <laughs> I you know it's like I kind of when I watched this, I enjoyed it, but I was just like, okay, it's another Charlie Chaplin movie. You know, <laughs> I know. I think that, I think this one's like. So many things that I feel like don't work about his earlier ones, I think work great in this. Like, especially mm-hmm. the sort of more poignant emotional stuff where it's like, I'm usually kind of rolling my eyes at his earlier ones because it's like, all right. All right, Charlie, we get it. You want us to be sad now. Yeah, the emotional stuff, I think, did work quite well in this movie, uh, especially the scene at the end 
the ending for this movie is so so good (laughs) i love the end of this movie and it's like it's very simple it's very like straightforward so uh out of the boxing match uh the tramp gets he goes back to his millionaire friend who is drunk and the millionaire is like uh i was like oh you need money like here you go will will a thousand dollars be enough he's like oh yes please and then unfortunately there were some burglars in the house and the the millionaire gets knocked out and then the police show up and they're like uh they catch charlie and then the the millionaire wakes up but he's sobered up so he doesn't remember him so he's like why you have all my money in your pocket and so then he has to he has to escape so he escapes, he gives the rent money uh, and the eye surgery money to the blind girl and then uh, leaves and is arrested for the burglary. Uh, and there's a time jump. Ten months go by. He is wandering the streets again, you know, penniless. Fresh out of prison. Yeah. Fresh out of prison. Fresh out of the big house. Uh, and he comes across the flower shop the girl works at. Or she, with the money she was able to... Start right. up her own flower shop. She used yeah. to sell flowers on the street uh, yeah. just to make ends meet. They like he recognizes her and she's able to recognize him. I forget exactly like what the exact thing that she recognizes him about it about him well, is. So so he starts well, he starts staring at her and then uh and then and she's like, Oh, I, I have some kind of weird admirer, but he's cute or whatever. <laughs> and um she can tell that he's, you know, a drifter kind of guy a tramp as he looks a tramp he looks like even more disheveled than usual he just looks like incredibly defeated and sad uh and so she goes to give him like a coin uh because you know he's poor uh and she wants to help him out and when she gives him the coin she recognizes the feeling of his hands Mm, yeah and and like and she's like, oh, this guy that's staring at me. And she asks him, like, is it you? And he's like, yeah, it's me. And uh, yeah, that's that's nice. That's nice. Um, that's and Well, then he's like, you can see now. And she's like, yes, I can see now. Because ah! <laughs> it's like she's, I don't know. It's like the metaphorical seeing in addition to just them being able to actually see each other. It's very sweet. And I don't think it overdoes it. In a way yeah. that I think some of his earlier ones do. I think it, a lot of that has to do with their chemistry. Even though the actors apparently did not care for each other at all. Yeah. I do think they have very good romantic chemistry in this movie. And it makes yeah. that it makes that element of the plot uh, really work. Yeah, I um I watched a... Uh, there's a series called Chaplin Today, which is has many documentaries about each Chaplin movie. And... Uh, this one was um, interviewing Nick Park from uh, mm-hmm. Ardman, and he was kind of talking through the his favorite moments from the movie and what kind of influenced him as an animator. Um, but in particular, uh, there was a moment where he was talking about like what set Chaplin apart from Keaton and Lloyd, and he was saying that it was the range, which you know I I find often that I I end up enjoying. Buster Keaton movies more than Charlie Chaplin mm. movies because I, I I get more good laughs out of them. Mm-hmm. But it is true that uh you know Buster Keaton is not really selling the romantic scenes so much you know yeah or yeah. or the pathos like Charlie Chaplin is. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and and he does a very good job in this movie for sure. Yeah, as this a director a, and an actor. Yeah, this is the one where it like it really works for me. And it, yeah, I feel like I'm repeating myself at this point. Uh, this is the first Charlie Chaplin movie that he wrote a score for. I think we watched mm-hmm. some of the earlier ones with his scores seven years ago. But um, those were written later. This was the first one that he actually wrote a score to. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's good. It's a good score. Yeah, it works. I love this, too, because it gives you an idea of... It gives you, like, a, a, a somewhat contemporary idea of what silent scores sounded like or mm-hmm. would have sounded like in, in just a year or two before. Mm-hmm. Because it's somebody, like, writing a silent movie score that is recorded and synced to a silent movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Great movie. But yeah, it's like, it is kind of an interesting artifact in film history, I think for the Mm -hmm. reasons that we've talked about. Yeah. I, I really, really like this one a lot. I liked it. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Another very famous movie from this year, uh, that is not so charming or funny is M directed by Fritz Long. <laughs> Apparently <laughs> that is a weird transition, but you told me that you had the order of everything figured out already. And I failed to see the link between these two, There's except not that really I have a... criterions of both. Of well, them. <laughs> the link is that the, the other four movies that we're talking about are sort of are fit, into, are fit yeah. into nice pairs. And this is the other sort of like lonely orphan of a movie. <laughs> and it's also yeah like similarly to to city lights is like crazy famous mm-hmm. and influential and uh is one of the best movies by this director yeah this movie is real good <laughs> yes it is uh for like entirely different reasons than city lights city lights is yeah. like so sweet and like uh and funny and charming this movie is if anything, the opposite. This movie is haunting and yeah. chilling <laughs> in a really kind of, in a way that I'm not used to seeing from movies this old for them to mm-hmm. like be able to get that level of like old movies just don't tend to get as dark as this one does, I think. Right. We've we've seen some darkness in a couple of these movies, but this oh, yeah. one, this one's like like oh god but you it's know? <laughs> like it's funny that even though it's pre-code right movies are still not really don't really show well, it's a, a lot german of, movie so it doesn't matter right but it's like old movies don't tend to show a lot of a lot of violence or nudity or sort of you know shocking things to you but yeah really good directors like fritz lang can still create really effective scenes out of horrible things happening without actually showing them and actually by not yeah. showing them it makes them even more horrifying and this is a perfect example of that because this is a movie about a child murderer that contains no scenes of murder. But by is... the way, he he murders children. He's not a yes. He's not he's like not a child actual... detective or something. Right, right. <laughs> There's a scene early on in this movie where we, the audience, can know that a child has been murdered by a serial killer, mm-hmm. and we're just watching the mother like run through the house. And, like, in the apartment building. It's good. Calling her name. And we, as she's calling her name, it cuts around to just, like, an empty place at the table. An empty room. 
all this just emptiness, like just shots of empty rooms. Yeah. And it it is so chilling and haunting of just like the lack of anyone in the frame. Yeah, it's it's so well done. There this movie has a lot of boldness as far as uh, allowing it to just hang on things and be mm-hmm. silent and look at nothing but look looking at nothing in a way that makes you uneasy or, or or anticipating something horrible yeah that that scene reminded me of um the part in jaws when the first kid is killed mm-hmm. yeah and and you're just kind of anticipating like who is the mother who is going to be like devastated right now right yeah. kind of like in jaws shows a bit more but like a lot of the early shark attacks in jaws right focus on sort of like the aftermath or sort of these little elements around it like we don't actually see any of the children being murdered in this movie but there's there's been established that like children have been disappearing there's like posters up and the first time someone's actually killed in the movie it is off screen but it is like the the kid is bouncing a ball as he's like led away by the killer and then we see the ball just kind of like rolling by itself like yeah. through the dirt and then the balloon that she was carrying getting like caught in power lines yeah which is kind of like in jaws right like the kid is on the 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 floaty thing and we see the floaty the tattered floaty thing just washing up on shore and it's like that's all you need to see that's mm-hmm. like that puts enough of an image in your head where you're just like oh god it's good it's it's yeah. tasteful and it's like really eerie it's, it's eerie is a good word yeah and um we don't we only see i mean this movie starts off with so much like suggestion and uh and just yeah kind of anticipation and uh like the shark in jaws like there's it's a while before you see the murderer himself like yeah. you get to see, see a clear look at his face and um you get all of this kind of like like implication before mm-hmm. you actually see him of him whistling yeah and the the whistling is like another kind of like haunting thing it's like what can i do to freak people out in a sound yeah. movie you know have a murderer who whistles all the time which is and just have uh, it hanging off the off the screen yeah is <laughs> like such a brilliant use of sound Mm-hmm. Which is like finally we're getting to the point where people are like really knowing how to use sound in movies, and this yeah. is a great example of that because the whistle is like such an important. I mean, it's incredibly important to the plot for one thing, but then it also just is so important to the mood and the atmosphere of this movie. Oh, there's the link. The two so these two movies have whistles in them. <laughs> sure, there you go. Um, <laughs> so yeah, the the opening scene of this, the opening shot of this movie after its great title card, um, is the. <laughs> Uh, the creepiest German children's rhyme of them, like <laughs> doing a sort of, I don't know, one of those things where you like you count down and then it's like an any mini miny mo kind of situation, yeah, but but <laughs> but even creepier and more German. And that's the opening shot of this movie. It's like children singing about being murdered. Yeah, in like a fun <laughs> way, and it's, and the parents are like, "Would you stop that?" It's like please? there is a serial killer who's killing children. Please stop singing about death. Clearly, this is uh, like the the translation's a little fanciful because uh, they made it rhyme. But right. it is just you wait; it won't be long. The man in black will soon be here with his cleaver's blade so true. He'll make mincemeat 
out of you. Yeah. Which is a hell of a way to open any movie. And knowing like a bit about what this movie is about, just just that opening shot, I was just like, oh boy, here we go. This movie is going to be <laughs> intense. And then, yeah, we follow one little girl as she like is crossing the street. She like almost gets hit by a car too. And that's like a thing of tension. It's like, oh, don't die. And then sees the poster of like the missing children. And we see the silhouette of a man, his shadow falling across the poster. Great. Great. Great shot. The killer, by the way, played by Peter Lorre, one of my favorite mm-hmm. actors. This is like his breakout role. Yeah, he's very good in this. I mean, you can see why he continued to work, uh, I mean, until like the 1960s. Yeah, I mean, at the beginning, he kind of is just doing this sort of like ominous creepy thing right. uh and then then the kind of the back half of the movie he is panicked and is like a an he's like a like an animal he's like a yeah yeah his big bulbous eyes and just sort of like <laughs> his mannerisms are so kind of perfect for this movie of like really good yeah his like soft he's very his, well cast when he's like soft spoken and creepy that's one thing but then also when he's just like panicked and like spitting and yelling and his eyes are popping out of his face it's like it's really really intense yeah in particular like the you know i think nowadays we would consider it i would look at a scene like that and i go like oh, okay it's your oscar scene you know mm-hmm. but like uh this i think this predates oscar bait speeches in right <laughs> as a thing and like this this part of him uh talking about like his like killer compulsions is yeah. harrowing and he does oh, yeah. such an amazing job with it it's like because it makes I was you like, feel kind of bad for him after he's been established as like he's killed a bunch of kids yeah yeah but he talks about like the voices that make him do it and all yeah. and like how like the only time when he doesn't feel like he's a a shadow that's that's tailing himself is the only time the voices stop is when he's killing someone. It's like, oh, God, oh, my yeah. God, it's so good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Oof. A thing that I didn't really know about this movie that is, like, kind of, other than it just being about a serial killer is kind of the main hook of it. And I think mm-hmm. that I love about it is that it is, it becomes kind of a procedural, like a crime-solving mm-hmm. movie through, like, yeah. all of Act 2. But the hook of it is that it's, like, the cops can't find this guy, right? They've been looking for weeks to find the serial killer and they can't figure out who it is. And then because of the increased, pol- like the police are everywhere and they're like stopping people on the street and they're like busting into like gambling dens and cabarets and like, we're just arresting people just to get them off the street in case they might be the killer. All of the local criminals get together and they're like, this is bad for business. Yeah. There's too many cops around. We've got to catch this guy because we can do it better than them. <laughs> yeah. And the fact that then the movie is like split between like the kind of ineffectual cops who have like way too many leads to follow and are like not necessarily corrupt, but you, I feel like the way that they're portrayed is like kind of uh, what's the word like bureaucratic, just like mm-hmm. it's kind of a mess. And then the criminals who are just sort of like cutting through everything to be like, no, we got to like one. It's that it's like it's hurting their criminal enterprises but it kind of feels like it's like they're the community right like right um and they're kind of doing it 
I think in addition, they're doing it out of like for their own communities, sort of. They're like, no, this is like everyone's terrified. Like this is this is terrible. We should catch this guy. This guy's awful. Yeah, it's like we're we're respectable criminals who. Right. I mean, it, it's like a mafia kind of yakuza sort of like we are. We're like doing respectable criminal stuff. We're not actively trying to kill people all the time. We're not like freaky, yeah. like child serial killers. Like this guy, we don't endorse him, and he's yeah. wrecking up our time. Yeah. Um, so yeah. And so then it, it kind of becomes like CSI 1930. Because <laughs> uh, it goes into a lot of detail about like about like crime solving and like setting up perimeters and like search search areas and like um, there's a lot of really cool intercutting between like there's like a, a conversation over the phone that like with the police commissioner where he's like explaining all the methods that they're trying to use to catch the killer and as he's talking it's cutting away to all these different scenes of like people analyzing fingerprints and like yeah. looking on maps to like make a map of where all the the murders happened and uh stuff that's like pretty you know commonplace crime movie stuff now but it's like it's really cool to see in this context it kind of reminded me of spies a bit either for its yeah. movie where he like he gets really kind of nitty-gritty into like the um yeah like the procedural stuff of like what what is what are they actually doing Fritz Lang really is, like, more of a pulp director than yeah. I had thought, I guess. Like, he loves, like, he he loves, like, the kind of fun, like, cops and robbers stuff. Yeah. And he I, he feels like, um with this and Spies, it feels like a lot of a, a follow-up to Louis Fouillade. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, yeah. in, in terms of, like, this movie, you know, th- there's ineffectual bureaucratic police. But then there is rather effectual if not very fair bureaucratic like systems in the organized crime mm-hmm. world and it's drawing all these parallels between the two yeah, where yeah. there are even like parts where they're kind of planning out how they're going to catch this guy and it's yeah. cutting back and forth mm-hmm. like very seamlessly with like some match cuts and some just like almost like uh, stuff that you see in 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 like a heist movie today of like mm-hmm. uh like someone is someone in one party is starting a conversation and then the other people unrelated are almost like picking up on the same idea and it's cutting back and forth between these people. Yeah, really the, well done. The editing in this movie is phenomenal. Yeah, especially for the time and and yeah, like the cops, the the the, the organized criminals, they have their own like. <laughs> judicial system that is literally underground well yeah it's it's underground in i think an abandoned factory that they say has been abandoned because of the depression so also mm-hmm. topical yeah um i think this movie is the is definitely the least kind of fantastical thing that i've seen fritz long do like yeah yeah his really early stuff is like just straight fantasy pretty much with like uh destiny and um the uh the ones that we didn't watch, the like uh, Siegfried, like mm-hmm. dragon fighting movies, um, and then like you know Metropolis is like very fantastical, kind of like big sci fi movie, and even Spies has like kind of some kind of like sci fi ish stuff in it. Yeah, and it's very pulpy. And, yeah, it's much more of like a like a you know Doctor Claw with petting a cat right. kind of yeah. <laughs> it's, it's like situation. it's like James Bond spies stuff. Um, yeah, yeah. Whereas this feels 
very grounded for for yes. his movies. Yeah. Also, like probably the best directed thing I've seen from him. Like, oh yeah, I wrote down a bunch of places where it's just like the camera work in this is really really good, and mm-hmm. I feel like feels influential too. Like, there's shots in this that I'm like, I've definitely seen this in other stuff, and it might have like come from this movie. There's a great when the cops like uh, do a raid on one of like the criminals bars there's they're like confiscating all all their stuff and there's this great tracking shot just across this long table of like guns watches like all this like contraband and stuff laid out and it's just this <laughs> long knuckles this yeah this like long knives this long tracking shot across this whole table of all this stuff they they're confiscating oh there's i mean there's another kind of big like one shot uh where the camera is like moving through one scene into the next mm. like goes through a window like it, it... through the window <laughs> i was gonna say that one next is so good and it's just physically yeah. moving a camera up a wall through a window but it's like i mean they probably it's even got it off to someone but it's it's, it's even got one part that like effect. uh feels like um like it, it transfers the camera in a fluid motion from one shot to another, but mm-hmm. it does it like on a blank wall, so it's hard to tell. It does the whole yeah. like Birdman thing, you know? Right, like it, hi- it, hiding the edits in camera movement. Yeah, it's yeah. I mean, it's not like I don't know. I, the shot doesn't have the most point to it, but like also, it's really cool. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's another. Another really great use of camera movement in this movie. There's a bit, I think it's with the police commissioner, where he's on the phone. And every word he says, the camera, like, creeps a little bit closer to him. So he, like, says something, and the camera moves up. And then he, like, there's a pause. He says something else, and the camera moves up a little bit more. And, like, as he's talking on each of, like, punctuated with each of the words, like, the camera just kind of moving in a little bit. Um, It's great. I want to steal that. <laughs> Um, but so yeah, then, then the, the criminals finally, um, talk to the blind man from earlier in the movie that sold, I don't know if we actually mentioned that on the, on the podcast or not, but in the opening, the killer buys a balloon for the girl and the balloon seller is blind, but he remembers the whistle. And so later he recognizes the whistle and he's like, oh shit, I know who that is. <laughs> and so because he's sort of, uh, he knows you know, the people on the streets, the criminals find out. They're like, oh, we found him. Like, follow that guy. And someone puts, uh, draws an M for murderer and chalk on their hand and kind of like slaps him on the back. So that then there is a chalk M of the title, like on mm-hmm. hit the back of his coat. Uh, and so they're able to follow him. And he sort of picks up that he's getting followed. And so he, he uh, ducks inside of a, of an office building. And so then they're like, should we call the cops? No, we got to get them ourselves. And so then they (laughs) like break into the office building and are like systematically, like breaking into every single room in the building. And like, there's a guy who tunnels through the floor to get into one room. And they're like, don't set off any alarms. Like there can't be any cops. Like we got to get them ourselves. They, They do find them and they do trip the alarm and they have to like run out. This is some of his best, like, bug-eyed, like, terror stuff, too. Right, yeah. Peter, Peter Lorre, Lurie, like, where... stuck in the attic in, like, the storeroom, just waiting to get caught. And he's, like, backed into a corner. And, yeah, it's... It... The lighting, too, helps, where it's almost just, like, the light across his eyes. Classic noir guy, Peter Lorre. <laughs> yeah. 
So that one one of the criminals gets caught, the guy who tunneled through the floor, and they're kind of trying to get him to rat out the rest of the people to find out where they brought the guy, Peter Lurie. Uh, which of course they yeah they bring him to the like the basement of an abandoned factory and have like a community trial for him, where they have like with all... including like a defense attorney and all of yeah. that. They like give him a defense attorney, and that's when he has his big you know Oscar clip thing where he describes like his you know his madness. It's um, a dismissive way to put it, even though it kind of gets the idea across of like what it is. But it's a an amazing amazing yeah speech yeah. And then, uh, parallel to that, the one criminal that the cops have caught, they they convince him that the night watchman that they had kidnapped uh, actually died, and that he's on the hook for murder in addition to, you know, breaking and entering. Uh, which then, it's very funny when they're, like, in the interrogation room, like, that guy died, we're gonna get you for murder, and then it cuts to the night watchman alive, like, eating this banquet of food and drinking out of this like cartoonishly huge goblet of beer <laughs> and then cut back to the guy like oh, murder I, I didn't you know um and so he tells them where the the trial is being held and so right as right as like the crowd is about to kill peter laurie pretty much like they're about to just like tear him apart the cops show up and take him away and like the last scene is like a scene of his trial but we don't actually see we don't actually see peter laurie all we see is like the the parents of the dead children, almost like talking directly to the audience at that point. Like we don't actually know if he, like what happened to the killer after that. Like we know he had a a trial by the state, right? The, like not this like underground criminal trial, but like a, a proper one. But it never reveals like what happens to him. It, like it, does he go to jail? Does he go to uh, an asylum? Does he get re-released back into society? We don't mm-hmm. know. But it's like... Well, I mean, like, part of the reason why the criminals want to kill him is because they're concerned that if he uh, goes to the normal criminal justice system, he will get to plead insanity, and then uh, maybe he'll end up getting out when they think he's cured or something like that, and then he'll just kill people and mess everything up again because uh, he can't resist doing it. Um and I think, I don't, it was a little unclear to me, but I think that, like, that had already happened with him was the thing, was that mm-hmm. he yeah. was in an asylum already. And the reason the cops were somewhat on to him was because they were looking at people who had been uh, released. released. Yeah. yeah. So, like, there's maybe a bit of an implication that it might happen again. Yeah. Um, the movie definitely ends on this kind of note of, like, a failure of the system almost or of like the you know it, it it feels like it's it's trying to make a bigger point about like how we treat criminals and like how we treat uh mental illness and that sort of thing i'm not sure exactly what fritz lang's thesis point is i know that he was an outspoken opponent of capital punishment which i definitely get from this movie that it's like as because the movie definitely is sort of like this is like the worst guy in the like he's done the worst thing that a person can do pretty much right yeah and so you see like the crowd at the end is like no like kill him like we're done talking about it you know and I'm like it's hard to argue with that feeling but at the same time like he is a human person who does like deserve 
a, a fair trial and that sort of thing. And it's like, I and he also deserves empathy in ways. Like even though he is like horrible, like he is clearly like schizophrenic and yeah, he is clearly like, in and, pain. Like, you know, and out like, of and he's, yeah, and he's right. struggling. Like he he is definitely. I get the sense that the character recognizes that what he's doing is awful. Right. But he, he but he has no self-control to stop himself. Like he's he is compelled to do it. Mm-hmm. Um and I, I like how the movie it doesn't really give you like an easy like pat on the back answer to that. It's just like, no, like shit's complicated sometimes. Like right. it's gotta, you know, yeah. and it like it ends on a very kind of um yeah, like an uncertain note of like what how do we as like people even respond to something like this yeah which we're still struggling with today yeah yeah uh so yeah this movie still feels very relevant and very like the 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 themes it's kind of grappling with still feel very relevant i think Mm -hmm. um i watched some of uh the william friedkin interview with fritz long which is on youtube um and in that uh Fritz Lang talks a little bit about he used to shadow the police. Um, he's like follow them around in in Germany in the twenties, and uh, he met a man who was accused of murder. Uh, and he was with the police when they found severed hands under his bed, which is crazy. Wow. <laughs> um, he also heard about a guy. He didn't actually meet this guy, but he heard about a guy who would uh uh murder people and make sausages out of them which is uh i guess a real thing that happened um but he also said in that interview that like said every criminal that he met were generally like very friendly to him mm-hmm. like fritz lang was like yeah you know like they were all pretty they all seemed like decent folk and i think that kind of comes across in this movie this movie has a lot of like sympathy for the safe crackers and the like uh you know <laughs> it has affection for the the kind of gentleman thief type people. Yes, for sure. And um oh yeah, I watched this movie on HBO Max and it uh minimized it before the movie ended, which sucks and I want to call them out on it because like cut they that out. Listen. Cut that shit out. Um I know, I just want to complain. Yeah, this movie is uh real good. Yeah. And and feels like it it might have sort of set a real precedent for like serial killer movies too i think it's the first time we've seen like we've seen movies about murder before but this is like the first i mean the term serial killer didn't exist when this movie came out Hmm. i think it was inspired by a real guy in germany in the 20s yes i forget his name Uh, or at least partially the the vampire of dusseldorf or something he had Uh some he had some crazy nickname like that there are a lot of like creature-based serial killers in Germany in the 20s. There's, like, another guy that's, like, the werewolf of something else. <laughs> they had a lot of, like, uh, you know, supernatural creature names attached to their murders. But so it was... It feel, This movie feels both... Like I said before, it feels relevant now, but it feels pretty topical for when it came out also. Hmm. Yeah. Also just a great movie. Yeah. Good stuff. Another movie that is 
concerning the criminal underworld ah. is two of the movies that yeah. we watched today. The next two. So I'm just gonna I'm just gonna pick a random one. Well, let's start with the first one released because I think that is important. With okay. with these these next four, I think the release order is sort of plays a factor. Mm-hmm. So 1931 had two very big, influential, important gangster movies, both released by Warner Brothers. The first of which was Little Caesar, directed by Mervyn Leroy, and starring Edward G. Robinson in his big breakout role as uh, the title character, who is is often referred to as Rico in the film. That's like his nickname. Yeah. Uh, Uh, I guess Little Caesar is also his nickname, but it's his shorter nickname. Uh, this movie is delightful. Yes, it is. <laughs> I have never seen so much amazing slang in one oh movie. Oh <laughs> my god, yeah. This movie, I realized, is... So I, I knew that this movie existed, I'd heard of it, but I didn't realize how much the sort of, like, cartoon idea of a 1930s gangster is from this movie. Yeah. And I mean, part of that is, like, that's just how gangsters, I think, partially did behave and like, i think this is also this is also just edward uh, edward g robinson it's, just doing an incredibly iconic performance that's what i mean it's like he, edward g robinson's performance in this movie specifically is like where an entire like stock character came from yes which is the like yeah i'm a, I'm, a, I'm a gangster he says meow a lot he says he says sure there are points where he says meow see meow yeah. <laughs> um and it's funny just to see that because it it's kind of silly to watch now but it's also like to see the origin of something that is that has sort of just like spread into culture that much where yeah. it's become just like it's like halloween costume of a character mm-hmm. to see the like source point of it where it actually is like a pretty well realized performance yeah, I think um, he's great in this that, movie. Like, he he feels like a real human in this, as opposed to you know a like Looney Tunes <laughs> cartoon. <laughs> but that's the thing; it's like he is a real human, but every time he opens his mouth, you're just like wonderful. Every great, time he hilarious. opens his mouth to pop a big stogie <laughs> in there uh, and talk about crime, yeah. This movie opens with a, a Bible quote: "For all that they take the sword shall perish with the sword," which is a grammatically very odd sentence. It's like, it's live by the sword, die by the sword, but with a different translation, I think. Uh, But with more of an emphasis on stealing. (laughs) And we see a a, a late night robbery gone wrong at a gas station, where presumably the gas station owner is killed. And then uh, we we go to a lonely diner at night where uh, Rico and uh, his best buddy... uh, was it Rico and uh, and Joe? Joe, thank you. Joe Massara. Rico and Joe Massara, who is up. Douglas Fairbanks Jr. Yeah, Douglas Fairbanks Jr. We're a fan of Douglas Fairbanks Sr. on this podcast, and it's so it's funny to see like, oh yeah, he had a son that was also in movies, like around the same time. <laughs> yeah, I don't think uh, Douglas Fairbanks Jr. has quite the charisma in this movie that Senior did in Zorro and Thief of Baghdad. No. But he's fine. He's fine, but I mean, he's, you know, I mean, Rico he's, steals he's, the show. He's playing like handsome man in this movie. So it's not he doesn't have a lot to do, I feel like. Yeah. 
He's the uh, he's the Zeppo Marx of this movie. Very much so, yeah. <laughs> and so at the diner, Joe and Rico order spaghetti and coffee as gangsters do. And Rico's like, "We're small time. We gotta we gotta move the city where the where the big leagues are." <laughs> and so they do that. And the I don't know. The plot of this movie is pretty straightforward. It's like the rise and fall of Rico as a gangster, right? Like we see him like rising yeah. to the ranks and like supplanting other people and like making alliances and backstabbing other people and he kind of he mainly just like jumps into the scene as an extremely like ready to be violent and aggressive guy yeah and that works out for him for the most yeah and like until it doesn't (laughs) it is kind of almost the stock like gangster movie plot too Mm -hmm. even like the next movie we're gonna talk about after this the public enemy already is adding a lot more kind of like detail and nuance onto that of it isn't just like this like rags to riches to rag story like mm. but this one is like it does feel like this is the quintessential gangster movie in its most like pure simplest form right not that there's anything wrong with that no because it, it, like, it works right in this movie yeah it's um, not like it's it's plain or anything it's just that um yeah it's it's iconic yeah i would say there's a, a great uh there's a great bit early on just like introducing some of like the side gangster characters and the camera's just like moving around to each of their faces <laughs> around like a poker table. And we meet the boys, which are Tony Passa, Otero, Bat Corilla, Killer Peppy, Kid Bean, and Scabby. Which are just <laughs> So good. Mm-hmm. So good. And that that is this whole movie. Like that vibe of just like Nicknames and old timey voices and yeah. shooting guns out of cars. It's it's such a so fun much movie. Slang. It's like a oh so much God. slang in this movie. Yeah. I would I would love to just put this movie on whenever, you know? Yeah. It's just a yeah. fun it's a fun watch. Lots of slang. Stuff like uh I've been in this game for many years and I put the cuffs on a lot of mugs. <laughs> or uh it's all Jake to me. <laughs> <laughs> which I which I had to look up what that meant. <laughs> yeah. At one point someone's referring to uh, a public execution and they refer to it as a neck stretching party. Which is That's the so most good. the most gangstery thing you can say about someone being <laughs> hanged. Ah uh, yeah, it's going to a neck stretching party later. Yeah, every every moment of this movie is packed full of that stuff. It's it's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, there was another there's another one uh that that Rico says uh, it's not even like super slang. It's just perfect gangster speak. Of <laughs> there's a rope around my neck, and you can only hang once. If any of it turns yellow and squeals, my gun is gonna speak its peace. Ah, <laughs> 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 uh, the yeah, yeah. This is this is a, a movie just to kind of luxuriate in, and it's it is uh, it is kind of wild how influential it feels like it has been. So uh, Jack Warner. One of the famed Warner Brothers who produced this movie uh, later said that the movie was a, a thinly veiled Al Capone movie, which is kind of funny that it came out the same year. It came out before Al Capone was convicted, but it came out the same year. So it's like Al Capone mm-hmm. was in he was in the news when this movie was being made and when it came out, which is uh, kind of wild that they're just like, let's make a movie about a real criminal who is famous right now and just like change the name. <laughs> Well, this was based also partially and like, I don't know, inspired in many ways too by a, a real mobster called 
Lil Caesar, mm-hmm. um, who is Salvatore Maranzano, mm. uh, who had just died uh, that year. I get the in- impression that the intent of the movie was to kind of capitalize on like Capone specifically, but I don't know. I mean, mm-hmm, that's mm-hmm. that's what Jack Warner said. He he did die like uh, nine months later after this movie came out. Oh, okay. Yeah, he had the same the same name, Little Caesar. Yeah, there, but uh, which now now just makes terrible pizza. I don't think I've ever had Little Caesar's pizza. I think I've had a bite of it once, and it was like, eh, I don't need it. This movie has Tommy guns in it, which is uh, fun. I don't think we've seen anything up to this point that actually has Tommy guns in it. Yeah, yeah. And including the cop uh, saying to hand him a Tommy gun, he's like, give me a chopper. Yeah. <laughs> oh, the best. <laughs> I wonder how much of this movie is like playing stuff up for the for the screen and how much of it is like did people actually talk like that in 1931 i mean the thing is that this is such an outlier as far as how people talk in this movie compared to every other movie that we've watched especially compared to like the public enemy is a much more kind of like naturalistic movie we'll get to that Mm -hmm. in a second but it does kind of feel like the the gangsteriness of this movie is like so like profoundly <laughs> strong it's it's a really stylish script it's yeah. like like the writing is very styled in this movie which is awesome i mm-hmm. think uh and this movie also i think is notable for i, I think you know I, and we might get a little more into this as we go through the next couple of years but i i think that a lot of a lot is made of the pre-code era as being mm-hmm. the super edgy era or or whatever and so far i feel like there have been aspects that have been, mm-hmm. you know, it all kind of is in the PG-13 realm, I think. But uh, there's there's a darkness, but it's not a darkness that necessarily fully didn't exist in the silent era. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But I will say that this movie is notable for being like a pretty like amoral movie about just an out and out bad guy. Like yeah. it, yeah. Like it is a movie about an entirely evil person, <laughs> and well, and you're just like, let's yeah. watch him be evil, you know? Right. There's never a point where it's like, uh. So this is a good way to transition to our next movie. But Rico is from the beginning is like, I want to do murder. I have murdered before. I want to steal. I just want to be a rich, powerful criminal. Yeah. And then we see him do that, and then. You know, that all crumbles and he is reduced to, you know, uh, a homeless person. And then the police taunt him through the newspaper saying like, ah, oh, he's yellow. He's a coward. He's He then calls the police to be like, I ain't yellow. I'll shut down with any of you. So then the police find him immediately by tracing the call. And they're like, hey, he's like, come out or we'll blast you with our timey guns. And he's like, no, you ain't t- never taken me alive. And then they blast him. And he's like, I'm dead. And then that's the end of the movie. <laughs> it's like, Mother of Mercy, is this the end of Rico? <laughs> right, which is, I think I had seen that on some, li- like, TCM list of, like, the greatest movie quotes or whatever. So that that is, like, a, a notable line of, like, that's that's a hell of a thing to say as you're dying, I think. <laughs> is to refer to yourself in the third person and be like, am I dying? But it's it's great, you know? Edward G. Robinson, he sells it. Um, yeah, good he's actor. so good in this. Yeah. Another good actor uh, is James Cagney, and he is the star of The Public Enemy, mm-hmm. also a gangster movie, also Warner Brothers. Uh, this one is directed by 
our old pal William Wellman, who did Wings. Yes. I think I like this more than Little Caesar. I think mm. it's a better written movie. It doesn't yes. have quite that level of just like uncut gangsteriness to it. But I think uh-huh. it, it has it has like more going on under the hood, sort of. Even it's a it's more a, complex movie. It's a very but... it's a similar movie, but it, I think it it has it has more going on, and I think it's it's less kind of cartoonish. <laughs> yeah, I like this movie, but like I th- I definitely like Little Caesar better because yeah. like I just love because the... of the cartooniness. <laughs> yeah, because it's like this such a heightened. Like, I think just because of the script, honestly. Like, yeah. this movie is, like, more well-written as far as, like, you know, in, characters in a, have yeah. better motivations and they're more complex. And, like, and Little Caesar is more well-written as far as just, like, how did you sit down and write all this dialogue? <laughs> like, it's so incredible. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think that kind of goes for, like, the, the lead performances and, like, the main characters, right? So, like, mm-hmm. I think Tom the main character of Public Enemy, Tom Tom Powers, which is a great name. Not quite as good of a name as Little Caesar, but um, (laughs) this movie opens with with, uh, him and his best pal as little kids in 1909, which Mm -hmm. is kind of a cool, you know, it has this like progression across like multiple decades kind of leading up into the main bulk of the movie. Um, And we meet, are kind of two lead characters as little two little stinkers causing yeah. trouble on the streets, sliding down escalators and stealing beer. And there's kind of a, a funny behind the scenes thing where like the kid actors. So initially the two lead actors of this movie, Cagney and the other guy whose name I forget, were going to play the opposite roles, but they switched at some point in production because they were like, wait, Cagney is actually way better and should be the lead of this movie. <laughs> um, but they didn't switch the kid actors, so the kid actors were cast to look like the adult actors, but they're switched. So it's like each of the kid actors yeah. looks like the other one, kind of. I mean, it's not like a perfect resemblance, but it's like it's just a, a funny thing where like the kid actors look like the opposite guy, you know? When I was watching this, like I was watching a story about kids, and I recognized that that the next people that I was seeing who were adults some years later were supposed to be those kids. But I was like, I don't remember who's who. Whatever. One of them was one of them. (laughs) Right. They're both kind of interchangeable. In the opening scene, they are kind of just like, ah, they're both, you know, little little rat kids. (laughs) There is, I think, uh, a little Caesar, right, is like, we meet him. He's already like a hardened criminal who's like, I'm in this for the money and for the power and that's all I want to do. I think starting this movie with the characters as kids lets us see kind of like what sort of like Like how how how, things went wrong right like how the circumstances of their lives kind of like push them in this direction in a way that they didn't really feel like they had any other way out of Mm -hmm. it feels kind of more sympathetic towards the criminal element i guess in that way and so we meet uh tom has a mean cop for a dad who beats him and it's like his dad the only scene we ever see his dad with is him abusing him basically right um and so it's like the dad only communicates to tom through violence so that's that's like that becomes the only language that he knows right oh yeah you like that um (laughs) a common trope you know it's like oh that's what happens but uh i think it it i thankfully doesn't really overplay that in the movie it's like it's one scene 
of him yeah. coming home and his dad beating him. And just that is enough to be like, yeah, I, I, I get this guy more than I would otherwise. Right. Um, one, his sort of like very anti-authoritarian streak and also his sort of like how quickly he will resort to violence later in the movie because it's it's just like that's he's just it's ingrained in him. And so the the two the two young lads meet a uh, a local fence named Ole Putty Nose, or Putty Nose, not Ole. I put the Ole on there. <laughs> What's a fence? Fence is a guy who sells stolen goods, or is sort of a, an in between to sort of get okay. stolen goods. All right. And we uh, we flash forward to the the lads are a little bit grown up. They're not played by adult actors, and Putty Nose brings him in on a job. And gives him uh, a gift from Santa Claus, which is two revolvers. Um, and they're there to steer, steal furs. Tom sees a big stuffed bear behind one of the furs and freaks out and shoots it, as you do. It's kind of silly. It's kind of <laughs> silly. It is kind of silly. And so then the cops hear the shots and they they shoot the uh, Limpy Larry, who's the lookout. And as they're escaping, they shoot the cop that's after them. And there's a great oh, chef's kiss shot. Like, we see them just running into a dark alley, and the cop runs after them, and then just gunshots go off. Mm -hmm. Tom and his buddy, uh, Matt, run out, and then we cut to just uh, a close-up of a a hand holding a revolver, presumably the police officer who chased them. And it's just a... And that's, like, the end of the the scene fades out on that. Dying, yes. It's, It's just, like, so perfectly composed. It's a great shot. This, I guess, is, like, speaking of their names, uh, at, like, the other one is very much an Italian mob thing, and this mm-hmm. is, like, an Irish mob Right, situation. yeah, a lot of, a lot of patties and, and, and such. Yeah. Patties and putties. Yeah. Uh, I don't know, is Powers really a, a, an Irish name? I don't know. I don't know. Then uh, Putty Nose kind of betrays them. He, like, doesn't let them back into the hideout because they're... They got heat on them. Right, we flash forward again, 1920, Prohibition started. There's a great scene of, like, all the liquor stores, like, selling out all their stuff before midnight. This and, is, like, like one of the... filling up baby carriages and, like, milk great. trucks. and Fantastic. <laughs> I assume all things real people did. I right like... Prohibition. I really like this part because, like, we have seen surprisingly few instances of prohibition being covered in movies. It's funny. I'm Um, kind of surprised how much prohibition stuff we like how explicitly movies from the prohibition era are just like, Oh yeah, everyone's drinking. Yeah. I guess this movie acknowledges it. Cause I think we've seen drinking in tons of American movies, tons of American movies post prohibition and it's either like it was set 10 years ago where people could drink or it's set in Europe where people could drink. True. And I guess that's nothing, part of it. Nothing is said of it. Well, uh, it's High and Dizzy, right? That's like 1920. That's like The only right other one that I can think of is High and Dizzy that mm. actually like acknowledges yeah. prohibition. I mean this movie is crazy. very explicitly about prohibition. Right. But like I I think I really love the depiction of like the last night mm-hmm. of yeah. liquor being allowed. This mad rush. Yeah, the the baby stroller full of <laughs> full yeah. of whiskey is great. It it all feels like maybe it's all made up, but it feels like things that would have actually happened. Yeah. yeah. Probably not all on the same block at once like it's shown in the movie, but it's it feels like <laughs> all those things were true stories that someone cribbed and put into the script. Mhm. I think we should take 
sometime at some point just to be like, I think James Cagney is very good in this movie. This is like he had been in stuff before this, but this is like his breakout. This is his first mm-hmm. like big lead role. And I do think he he has a bit more of a kind of like naturalistic way of acting than um, Edward G. Robinson in Little Caesar anyway. Yeah, yeah. I I mean, yeah, he feels like a real person in this right, movie. Yeah. And like and it is true that um yeah, I don't know if the acting like I don't know if it's like I think best acting award goes to Peter Lorre in this episode. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but like yeah. he's doing a very good job and people doing a very good job is still a little rare right now. Right, yeah. And I think also just things I notice about his performance in this is like he has a lot of really great physicality and like business. Like, if he's doing a scene of something, he's usually, like, kind of doing something else at the same time. Or, like, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. he has great little, like, flourishes of things that he does. Yeah, like, he'll kind of, uh, like, affectionately, like, nudge people on their their chin with his fist. Play punches, which then his mom does to him at some other point in the movie. And, yeah, just, like, in a scene, like, he won't necessarily, like, always, like, look where... Like, I feel like so many actors, like, walk into the scene, they're staring straight ahead. They're like, nope, I'm going to say my line. I'm going to, you know, it's like, it's it's a bit yeah. stilted. It's a bit stagey. Mm-hmm. Whereas I feel like Cagney walks in the room and he's, like, looking around and he's, like, picking stuff up and doing, you know, he's, like, he's very busy, but in a good yeah. way. In a way that, like, yeah. it's like, yeah, he's acting like a person. And then there's the uh, a famous part of this movie where he uh, shoves a grapefruit in someone's face, which is just... <laughs> yeah. It's apparently was very shocking at the time, uh, which is kind of crazy because yeah. like I this this scene I don't know I feel like it's so oh my god like yeah he he's a scumbag and he gets in a in an argument with his girlfriend and then he shoves a grapefruit in his inner face and I heard about it and I was like oh it sounds like super violent and horrible like getting it in her eyes and stuff and I watch it and he just like takes a thing and puts it in her face I'm like yeah. okay he just kind of slaps <laughs> it in her face. But I think yeah. <laughs> I think part of it was that like it there's conflicting stories about that scene and I it seems like there was some element of like he wasn't supposed to do it as forceful or like there there was some element of like unex- it was unexpected in that take where it's like he was supposed to mime it but he he actually like hit it hit her face with it or something I don't know what it was it it does seem tame now it's like having like a grapefruit put not even like shoved in your face just kind of like slapped in your face just kind of like mushed into your cheek (laughs) yeah Yeah. (laughs) i mean you know it's still not a good thing to do oh no don't do it uh do not uh, not condone grapefruit grapefruit smushing on this show uh grapefoot is the the I don't know the the French cousin of big of Bigfoot. <laughs> he he walks around uh, wineries. <laughs> he walks around. Well, they get they got to hire him for the winery to crush all those grapes with his big feet. <laughs> oh um, my god, it's perfect. So an, a a very good scene a bit later on is uh, Tom's out on the town at a typical nineteen twenties party with lots of streamers at it, um, mm-hmm. and they see Putty Nose, their old boss, Putty Nose. Who, who left him at the dry when the, the coppers were after him. And so they, like, follow Putty Nose home and uh, put put the clampers on him and are like, come inside. We're coming inside with you. And Putty Nose knows what's up. He's like, even though they're talking in, like, gangster speak of, like, no, we just want to have a nice conversation. He's like, <laughs> you know. And eventually they, like, go inside to his apartment and Putty Nose is like, 
really realizing it's about to be murdered and he's like please i don't want to die i don't want to die and james cagney has this great line delivery where he's like oh so you don't want to (laughs) die like oh big big man over here doesn't want to (laughs) die yeah he really like yeah he does feel like a more real life like bad person like right. a, it's, like, it's like a... we can kind of see he has more of an arc right where it's like we can kind of see him getting further and further like down this road and we see his behavior changing to like the more like sadistic side of him come comes out more and more mm-hmm. and another great use of sound in this movie is uh it pans away from tom and putty nose to matt who's like at the door and we just mm-hmm. hear tom shooting putty nose and then his because he's sitting at the piano we just hear all the keys like the of a body landing on the piano and i'm like that is great i don't know if they were deliberately trying to be like we can't show murder in this movie but they do a really good job of like artfully not showing actual violence occurring Mm -hmm. yeah it reminds me of uh of a scene that was in m where um there are some people getting like tortured. There's somebody getting like tortured for information and there's like a crowd of people watching yeah, it. Yeah. And as it kind of gets more intense, he's about to get like hit or attacked or whatever. The The crowd kind of gathers in so you can't see what's happening. And then you hear just a scream from behind mm-hmm. the crowd and the crowd pulls back out again. Yeah. A lot of nice like hiding of violence, mm-hmm. I guess, or yeah. artful, I suppose. There's a scene that I found very funny, um, or just kind of absurd, where one of their, like, big gangster pals is named Nails Nathan. And Nails Nathan is killed when, uh, because he likes to ride horses, he falls off his horse and is kicked in the head by a racehorse. And so, what does Tom do? He's like, well, we can't have any of that. And so he goes down to the track and (laughs) murders the horse (laughs) for revenge. (laughs) <laughs> he buy. he's like how much is this horse worth worth a thousand here's a thousand and then he walks over the horse and shoots it yeah great again they don't actually show that he just like walks into the stall right where the horse is and we hear a gunshot and he comes out setting the precedent for all time that gangsters uh hate horses and will murder them at any point <laughs> but i just think that's that's such like a funny like gangstery thing of like our friend was killed it was an accident a horse kicked him and they're like We'll take care of the horse. Like, <laughs> uh, this movie does end in a very shockingly violent way. Yes, which I was pretty uh, astounded by. Like nails dying, kind of like leaves a sort of power vacuum, mm-hmm. um, and so a rival gang starts taking over the territory that that used to belong to nails and and his crew. And part of that involves it's not safe for you. You got to you got to hide out in a safe house for a couple of days while the boss smooths things over. And so, you know, they they go to another sort of pre-code thing is this movie. He uh, Tom gets like seduced by the boss's mall, his his girlfriend. <laughs> he gets like now's the opportunity for you to really break out a lot of this lingo. Huh? Yeah, he gets like super drunk. And the girlfriend is is seducing him. And it, it's sort of like, we don't see anything really, but it's like, they like fall into bed and the light goes out. And then the next day she's like, so how was it? And he's like, what are you talking about? I was, I can't remember anything. Very bad. Yeah, don't was, do that. 
But that is like at least acknowledging that like sex is a thing that people do feels like without yeah, it pretty being directly. like right without it being as much of a just sort of like winky winky thing of like they get as close to kind of showing it as they probably could even in pre code times right I feel like Hell's Angels also kind of was like right up against it. Of sort of like, mm-hmm. we're not actually going to show any sex happening, but it's like, go against the constraints as much as possible. In Hayes Code movies, I feel like they would have to be more, there'd be more like innuendo around that. They'd, it'd be more sort of like... Probably very light innuendo. Yeah, but it, that's the thing is like, Hayes Code movies tend to have like a lot of innuendo dialogue in ways that are like way steamier than like this scene is. Right, like there's a scene in I forget what the dialogue is, but there's a scene in uh, the Big Sleep that is like, it's just dialogue, and it's like, oh my, like it's someone turned the heat up in here, like what's going on? <laughs> but it's that feels like a notable scene for like a pre-code movie to have. True, yeah, I, I some of the most like yeah, uh, excluding some kind of European stuff, yeah, like the the, the sort of yeah. most like European stuff. Direct... They're, they're going way further than that. <laughs> It's some of the most, like, direct, like, reference to sex that we've mm-hmm. seen. Uh, it's not, like, it's it's completely unambiguous what, right, what happened. Yeah. Partially because of that, Tom was like, I gotta get out of here. Uh, and so he, him and Matt leave the safe house before they were supposed to. Unbeknownst to them, there is an ambush set up with a bunch of giant World War One machine guns across the street and a coal truck to hide the sound, which is mm-hmm. also a great, this is a great bit, right, where they're like, they're going outside and like the coal truck starts dumping coal and they're like, oh, someone's shooting at us. And they're like, oh, no, it's fine. It's just all that coal falling. And then they <laughs> unload the machine guns at him and uh, Matt gets blasted. Uh, but time gets away. Right. And then he, he goes for revenge against yeah. the enemy gang as he did with the horse. Right. But because they, they took his gun when he went to hiding, he has to get a new gun or guns, plural. So he goes to a gun store and acts like an idiot. And he's like, what? What are guns? How do those work? Can you show me? Um, and the guy's like, sure, here's a gun. Um, and he's like, how do, show, the, what? how do the bullets go in the gun? And he's like, oh, you got some bullets? He's like, I happen to right here in my pocket. And then it's like, just put them right here in the thing. And then he's like, like this? You mean like this? And so he loads the whole gun up. And he's like, put your hands up. I'm taking this other gun. Which is... Uh, I'm sure a thing that America, a lot of problems with guns, not a fan. I don't think it's that easy. <laughs> no, there's I a reason a why they keep harder. ammo and, and guns. Yeah, in I don't a separate think you, place. I don't think you can go and... to a gun store and be like, Hey, I'm dumb. Can I, can I practice putting bullets in this gun? Go ahead. Make my day. Uh, there was a <laughs> Tell very, them I didn't paint blast. <laughs> there's a, a very similar scene to this in the movie, the Rover with um guy pierce where he's like buying a gun on like the black market from a guy and he's like is it loaded and the guy's like oh yeah and then he just shoots it so yeah he wa- he walks into the enemy uh hideout but this, and this just scene starts... is so good is the thing i feel like just describing <laughs> it doesn't do it justice because it's got like the pouring rain and yeah. he's like waiting outside and he like watches everyone go in and then there's a it's good Probably the best shot in the whole movie, which is this, like, tracking shot of him walking towards camera through the rain with, like, mm. his hat pulled low and his hands in his pockets with his two guns. And then, again, he, like, walks in, and we don't actually see any of the gunfighting. 
we just hear all the gunshots go off and then he kind of stumbles out and we hear like like agonized screams in the background yeah, yeah. of like people dying from injuries which is a pretty intense it is that sort of thing it's like, they're not showing violence but they're they're planting it in your head really effectively they they use some kind of strategic like drips of blood in places mm-hmm. uh, as like yeah. their one kind of violent thing they can do yeah tom tom stumbles out and collapses and wakes up in the hospital mm-hmm. kind of realizes that his life has kind of gone off the rails <laughs> a i little think bit. yeah uh, his family visits him and he like apologizes for mm-hmm. being a scumbag yeah and you know that he takes some time to recover in the hospital but then they the the rabble gang kidnaps him from the hospital yeah and so you know his family is kind of excited to have him back they're like oh our son's nice now right yeah uh, and he's remorseful they hear that he has been kidnapped but then patty a kind of senior member in their gang tells them that uh he's kind of made a deal to get tom back and he Mm -hmm. thinks it's a pretty good deal so it's pretty likely that that he'll come back uh, so his brother Mike is kind of, you know, he's bearing the news that he's been kidnapped in the first place. His mom is uh, very excited to to have his son back from the hospital. She thinks that he's he's just about to get back. And so we see a lot of scenes of her just, oh, like, I'm going to I'm going to make his bed. So it's all nice for him. I mean- <laughs> as soon as that stuff starts, I'm like, oh, no, this is going to end real badly. Like, it's, yeah. it's very ominous, this yeah. whole section where it's like. They've gotten word that it's like, oh, no, like, we're getting him back. Like, they let him go. Like, he'll be here any minute. And and I'm just like, oof, this is something bad <laughs> is about to happen. So they, they get a knock on the door. And he's like, that must be him. <laughs> and, yeah. And then you see a bruised and bloody corpse of our like, main character. Wrapped up in, like, burlap bags and and just rigid from rigor mortis and then he just flops down through the open door collapses face first through the doorway and it's a real stunt like it's Cagney just like falling face first it looks like he's like padded up but still yeah and then yeah his his brother has to is like he's got this thousand yard stare and he's walking away presumably did like he then has to tell the rest of his family that that they're here He's <laughs> your, dead. Your they dead did son kill him. Is is in the door? This was like some real shocking violence. Like I I saw his corpse and I knew this was coming too. But like yeah. I saw his corpse and I was like, damn. The thing it's not even really violence. It's just the implication of violence. We see his like bruised, bloodied face, and it's like that's all you know. We don't see people beating yeah. him to death or like. Yeah. Hey, it's just this. It looks like, like Laura Palmer. Yeah, wrapped in pillows um <laughs> and uh the last shot of the movie is the the record finishing the record that's been playing a song under this whole scene finally finishes and just see the needle kind of on the empty space at the end of the record great way to end the movie because then the song that's playing on the record is the same song that plays over the opening credits so ah. sort of a uh, sort of bookends you know it's like poetry it rhymes exactly I, I watched one of the the sort of DVD featurettes about this movie, mm-hmm. um, and in it, uh, Martin Scorsese talks about uh, he saw this and Little Caesar on the same day when he was ten, 
which explains <laughs> a lot. Yes, it does. Uh, I feel yes, like it does. Public, the Public Enemy especially has some real kind of Goodfellas vibes. Mm-hmm. Um, with its the way it sort of delves a little bit deeper into like the actual kind of lifestyle, not so much just the crimes themselves, but like kind of a bit more of the appeal and uh, it being a uh, a much more kind of sympathetic look of like why would someone even do this right also a thing that scorsese brings up is how all the music in this movie like all the early talkies that we've seen all the music in it is diegetic except for like opening and closing credits except the weird thing is like the one movie that we've seen that has had non-diegetic music has been um uh broadway melody right yeah and and not even just for the musical numbers, I think. It mm-hmm. had some like actual non diegetic score. Yeah. But yeah, it became it became uncommon. Is that where Scorsese got this from? It seemed he seemed to imply that it kind of was, of like, oh, you can just have music that the characters are listening to playing throughout the whole movie. And it's like you don't oh, need to score. You just can score it with actual songs <laughs> that the characters would listen to, even if they're diegetic or non diegetic. So uh, I don't know, him pointing that out, I thought was like a cool thing of like, oh shit, that is like precedent being set by this movie. It's, it's an not being set needle by this drop movie, but... in it. An actual yeah. needle drop soundtrack. Yeah. Very much so. Which, the lack of score is kind of weird that almost none of these early talkies have score of any t- yeah. of any kind. Yeah. Which I think might be a thing until like King Kong. Because I was just reading about King Kong recently which came out in 33 and how like the score for that movie was like such a, like a revelation that it had this like big bombastic expressive score throughout almost the whole movie. Hmm. I'm like, damn, that's, I'd never thought about that before, but that might be, I'm now curious to see if we watch anything from 32 that has a score like King Kong's or not, because Mm -hmm. yeah, King Kong feels like it has a very proper like film score to it. And like a lot of scenes in that movie have music over them. Huh. Yeah. I, uh, I'm less of a King Kong person than you. Well, yeah. Uh, I, so. I bought, I bought the, uh, the life magazine King Kong edition at, at, oh. a, at a, uh, <laughs> at a, uh, for the Hudson podcast News. listeners, uh, he's, he's holding up the life magazine King Kong edition the, to the whole, camera. The life magazine King Kong edition, which, yeah, I saw it at Hudson News, and I was like, well, I can't not buy this. The actual... <laughs> You're the exact like... sucker that, like, yeah. it's just like, oh, uh, the Life magazine of uh, Kenny G. Every <laughs> Everybody who's heard of Kenny G, buy a magazine about him. It's true. Um, uh, it's funny that some some of the some of the glossy uh, pics in this are clearly very low resolution, and it's funny. Oh, like, wow. You couldn't, you couldn't get a high-res JPEG of King Kong punching Godzilla in the face? I love low resolution uh, like images in uh, like official signage. That is like <laughs> one of my one of my aesthetics. Something that I love is when I go into a diner and they have like an the, me- the menu is super low res. Yeah, all the like, all the pictures are like you can see the pixels. Yeah, you can see like the like you can see like the transparency artifacts like on the edges <laughs> of these really low res picture of a soda cup. <laughs> I love that. That's my favorite stuff. <laughs> oh boy! 
I mean, you go to enough diners, you're going to see a lot of that stuff. Yeah, this is co- a complete tangent, but I, I might have right. mentioned this to you before. But one of my favorite diner menus ever, my favorite diner menu ever, was at the Mohegan Diner in Peekskill. Mm-hmm. And for years, for a long time, they had a photo, or not a photo, like a like a image, like a drawn image of the United States of America on the back of the me- uh, the menu. It said, mm-hmm. God bless America. And it was uh, one of those kind of multicolored maps where every state was a different color. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so it had the state name, and then it had the uh, capitals of every state, too. Very educational map, except uh, the capitals of Washington and Oregon were swapped on the map. So, <laughs> <laughs> and... I thought I was losing my my damn mind. Like, was it like a, a Mandela effect thing where you're just like, in my universe, these are different? Seriously, it was like, like I don't know how you go about having an image of a map that has just the wrong state capitals on it. At least they're close together, right? You know, it wasn't like right. Oregon and Florida capitals are swapped. You know, it's like, I guess that's yeah. an easier mistake to make. Uh... But it was like, it was like Seattle, Oregon and like, <laughs> like, <laughs> like, uh, I, uh, what's the capital of Oregon? I don't know. Portland? I don't know. Portland, Washington. Portland, it Washington. Was, it made you feel like you're, you were losing your mind when you yeah. looked at it. Yeah. And the thing that really made it me feel wrong. like I was losing my mind yeah. was... One day I came <laughs> one day I came back to the diner and it was the same image, but the capitals were right. Oh, so they fixed it. I, I guess they fixed it with very little fanfare, although I don't know why they would just put a sign up that says <laughs> we we fixed the menu. They had a lot of fanfare. <laughs> I was I told so many people, I was like, Oh, come with me to this diner, their menu, their their America's backwards. Oh no. And, and then you went uh, there and it wasn't. And, and then I went there you and it looked wasn't. like a fool. And and it made me feel like was I just dreaming this whole time? I've, been to, I've I've come to this diner like a number of times at like three in the morning, as is the best time to come to a diner. Mm-hmm. You're bleary eyed, you're tired. Maybe it was me the whole time, right? Oh boy! But I was like, I w- I thought it was so weird that I took a picture of it, and I d- mm. I couldn't find that picture for the longest time. But then I did. I found a picture of the backwards menu <laughs> on at that diner. And I was like, you snuck it. You tried to sneak away, but I have evidence. A a secret weird Lynchian thing where if you go to that diner after 3 a.m., it's swapped. (laughs) But if you go any other time, it looks normal. That could be it. That could be it. Uh, But yeah, a movie that is not diners. (laughs) A movie that is... uh, So we talked about a pair of famous gangster movies. Now let's switch gears to a pair of... Famous monster, monster movies. movies. The Universal Monster Movies. The two most famous Universal Monster Movies, mm-hmm. I would argue. Two of the most famous movies ever made, also. And, yeah. like, the most recognizable, like, iconic movies We're ever really made, getting into the probably. classics. I mean, these two movies are the poster children of the word classic. Uh, we're talking about Dracula and Frankenstein. Yeah. Something that I was noticing while I was watching these movies uh, is that the Dracula is the oldest film that a normal person would watch. Uh, <laughs> like, like you could imagine I, I, any I, old. I know person, what you mean. Yeah, you could wa- imagine any old person going. I'm. It's Halloween time. I'm going to watch Dracula. 
Mm-hmm. I'm a dad. I'm going to watch Dracula, you yeah. know? You're not, you can't imagine somebody, you know, you'd have to be a little bit more of a cinephile to go, I'm going to watch All Quiet on the Western Front. Oh, you'd have to be a lot, or no, yeah, or a lot more of a cinephile if you're going to watch anything silent, you know? Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. A random guy isn't going to watch anything silent. A random guy might watch Dracula. Yeah. So it is. It is the beginning of cinema history as far as normal guys are concerned. I want to find a normal guy who just randomly throws on uh, Last Laugh. Um, but I I don't know it's if that person de- exists. It's definitionally not a normal guy. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> by yeah, right. Simply by watching Last Laugh, he is no longer normal. <laughs> you're some kind of freak <laughs> so the first of these two movies to be released and the, i think the release order is similarly it's probably more important in this case than than with the last two uh dracula came out in uh in february yes 1931 which mm-hmm. is a bonkers time to release this movie <laughs> the fact that you would not release this movie in like late september or october is crazy i mean it is uh that's true, but there but is true. a tradition. It's true now. There's a tradition of yeah. Now there's a tradition of horror movies coming out in February because they just right. dump them uh, in. Well, because there's nothing else playing, and so they can make a ton of money. Yeah, but it's like this, this and Frankenstein both, but like probably even more so for Dracula is like the Halloweeniest movie maybe ever made. It's like yeah. the Halloween vibes yeah. are for at least large chunks of it are so strong of like how many cobwebs <laughs> and bats are in this thing spooky castles spooky castles dracula like the most you know the most famous iteration of dracula yeah it's one of those things where it's like oh yeah maybe this was before that was like a thing like did people like halloween was a holiday in in america in 1931 but like how much of the iconography associated with it was established with these two movies it's exactly you know? the kind of stuff I wonder about all the time. I don't know. This movie, Dracula, directed by Todd Browning, mm-hmm. who we, I think we had mentioned before, well, we'd mentioned London After Midnight, which is a famous lost movie from, I think, 26 or 27 that Todd Browning directed with Lon Chaney, where Lon Chaney played a vampire. Mm-hmm. And so this is his return to the vampire genre. And he was originally going to make it with Lon Chaney again at playing Dracula. Uh, but Lon Chaney unfortunately died of, uh, I think, lung cancer in 1930, like as they were developing it. Mm-hmm. Um, he might have actually dropped out before that, but it was like Lon Chaney was not in good enough shape to make this movie from the get go. So they had to find another person. And they went with uh, Bela Lugosi, who had yes. played Dracula on Broadway in the play, the 1920s play, which this mm-hmm. movie is mostly based on. This movie is more based on the play than the book. Uh, yeah. Which is and... kind of my main issue with it, but... <laughs> oh, interesting. I, yeah, I'm not super familiar with the book, and it's been a very long time since I've seen the Coppola movie. Glenn's pulling out the book right there. I haven't read it, but I have it handy. He likes I, to... I, want to read he, it. he's someone unlike me who has a uh, tolerance for old prose uh, <laughs> <laughs> but i was kind of shocked watching this because what i have seen what i am much more familiar with is nosferatu mm-hmm. and uh it made me realize how much of a knockoff nosferatu really is of oh Dracula. yeah 
Ab- no, it is is directly a Dracula movie, which is with all the names changed. I would actually argue that I think Nosferatu is kind of a closer adaptation of Dracula than this movie is. I think this movie changes more stuff from the book than that does. Hmm. Not counting names, of course. But, like, the entire idea of Dracula being, like, a suave, handsome gentleman who, like, like seduces women with his, like, European charm is a <laughs> is a theater thing. Like, in the book, he's, like, old and gross, more like how Dracula usually is in, like, newer movies where they show him as, like, an old creep. Or, like, Max Shrek is a Nosferatu, um, where he's, like, a creature more than he is a, a person. Right. I was thinking about Nosferatu and how, like, comparing it to the suave Dracula of this movie. Mm-hmm. And Hutter, who is the um, Renfield character in Nosferatu. Well, he's more of the Harker analog in Nosferatu. But also this movie swaps Renfield and Harker in for the first, like, chunk of it. So I don't know who this is. Uh, <laughs> the, um, the guy uh, who I'll... visits Dracula at his castle. Okay, I see. I didn't know that they changed that, but like that in in Nosferatu, Hutter is an absolute buffoon. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is a, as we called him, a himbo vampire hunter in in, <laughs> in that episode. Like sort of a sort of a Keanu Reeves type, perhaps. <laughs> sure, but like Nosferatu or or Orlock is like such an obvious freak. That like you right. need to be you need to be dumb right. to just you show, continue you show the on. castle and you see Count Orlock. You're just like I no no thank you sir. That is <laughs> yeah. a that is a creature that is not where, a person. Where it's like this guy like Renfield in this movie is more of a normal guy who and so yeah. if he were to see such a freak as as Count Orlock, he would yeah. just turn around again. You know right? Uh, yeah. But. But yeah, he goes. Oh, okay, this is a reasonable weird guy, right? Yeah, he, he's your, he has he's, a, he's he's from somewhere in Eastern Europe. I guess it's fine. Yeah, he likes, everyone tells he me likes stories his, about how he's cape. creepy. Right. <laughs> uh, he likes to keep twenty foot diameter cobwebs on his staircase. <laughs> <laughs> so that's like a pretty big change, I guess, from like the book or the traditional Dracula stories. Usually, we start with Jonathan Harker. Or Hutter in Nosferatu. He's going to visit Dracula's castle in Transylvania to close a real estate deal so that Dracula can buy a castle or an abbey in London. And then Jonathan Harker gets stuck in the castle and he has to escape. Yada, yada, yada. This, and then there's a different character who's Renfield, who at the start of every other Dracula story is like already insane and is locked up in the asylum. This is, I think, Uh. maybe the only example where... They switch out in the opening scene. It's Renfield going to the castle to visit Dracula. And we actually mm-hmm. see him pre-crazy. I think the person who plays Renfield, um, was it? Uh, uh, Dwight Fry. Dwight Fry. He is so good in this. He is. Like, Belagosi is like, he's very good in this and is like so iconic that it's like blasphemic to say anything bad about it. But I, Dwight Fry was I the performance I was most impressed with, I guess, because I didn't. I had no frame of reference for it. I was just like, yeah. he's very good in this. He, yeah, he, um, he starts as a very straight laced normal guy, and then the second that he is, even a, a sort of like a slightly sort of like fancy lad, he's sort of yeah. he gets, he's like his suit is like 
really nice and he's got his hat and he's, he's just you get the sense he's like a very much like a city guy right. who's like totally out of his depth in a spooky castle right <laughs> which is kind of where some of the comedy comes from but then then he turns into the renfield that we're used to seeing in dracula stories which is just this like animalistic crazy person who eats bugs and yes, he's just trying master. to yeah he's <laughs> calling dracula master and is you know his his thrall his familiar as it were if we're getting into uh what we do in the shadows terminology but i, I like i kind of like that change i think it's like on one hand i think it's better to have our lead character be the one to like introduce us to dracula's castle and to have all that stuff happen so i think it kind of hurts the movie in that way but I, I like showing Renfield pre-crazy because I feel like that almost never happens in Dracula movies or stories or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like it's usually we as soon as we meet him, he's he's eating bugs and he's talking about the master and all that fun stuff. But like I like how you can see he's like, oh, he's like a normal dude. And then cut to the next scene and he is just a, a lunatic. Right, he gets bitten specifically, and yeah, and that or it's kind gets of implied under... that he's bitten, and he's sort of like yeah. almost like a half vampire in this, because um, that also isn't. Sometimes it's more like hypnotism of like what his deal is, you know, like what Renfield's deal is is pretty vague. I th- I, guess, I think. <laughs> and speaking of hypnotism, though, there's a lot of fun stuff done in this movie with Dracula's hypnotic powers, mm-hmm. uh, where. People, in particular Renfield, are like, there are just scenes where Bella Lugosi is staring at him and, mm-hmm. like, kind of tele- telepathically having a conversation that you're hearing half of. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I think it's it's pretty well well done in this movie. It's, it, it, uh, you just get to see, like, Bella Lugosi mug toward the camera in a kind of hmm, threatening yeah, he way. Does, he does his, his, his eyes. He's got very piercing eyes. I feel like he was cast maybe as Dracula. In stage or on film, whatever, purely on his eyes alone. But it's like, I don't know, his performance in this is almost so iconic that it becomes silly. Yeah. Like, his it's, voice, it's his to... mannerisms is, like, the entire idea, not just of, like, Dracula's voice, but, like, vampire voice comes yeah. from him, specifically. We had like, the original Dracula, the original Frankenstein, and the original gangster in this, yeah. uh... It's crazy. <laughs> the, the original gangster. The yeah. OG. <laughs> yeah. No, but it's it's true. And so there's like, you know, when he's like, I never drink wine. It's like, <laughs> one, that's a very silly line to begin with. But it's like, even his, his cadence, his like, the speed in which he speaks is like, it's, it's Dracula voice. It's like, yeah, it's Dracula. Yeah. And I mean, I think you're getting at something, uh, true when you are like you're saying that this is a very halloweeny movie because yeah. this is not a scary film like no. we've seen scary movies like this, uh, uh, Nosferatu. Or, yeah but like this is just like spooky halloween fun you know right. it is it's, it is very spooky it is n- almost never scary there is a single shot in this movie that I, I do think is is fairly scary which is when the the ship arrives at, in London, they don't call it the Demeter. Mm-hmm. They call it the something else. I think the Vesta. But so Dracula's ship gets to London and you know, the people find that all the crews have all been killed. And they open up the hold 
and there's a shot of Renfield at the bottom of the stairs looking up, <laughs> like revealed by the light of that hatch of the ship. And he's just smiling and laughing like under his breath, this like low like chuckle, which he does throughout the whole movie. But it is that shot is incredibly creepy, I think. It's the really the only time the movie actually kind of gets under my skin. Mm-hmm. The rest of the time, it's like, yeah, it's Bela Lugosi wearing a cape, walking around, like, staring at people. And I'm like, this isn't really scary. <laughs> I mean, you know, to make a comparison with Frankenstein, I think, like, there are very cool sets in this movie. But, like, I feel like there's a whole lot of nothing in it. Like, the, Well, yeah, you are like, correct. <laughs> like, visually, the the scenes are not that rich it's just they're shooting in some cool places and they have some cool matte paintings um and like there are a lot of scenes where just people are just staring at each other and it's not boring it's just a little plain i guess (laughs) i started to find it boring this movie's very short my big hot take on dracula is that i don't think it holds up i don't think it's a very good movie i think it's like it's like a nice thing to put on but it's yeah it's like i don't but i I don't think like good <laughs> i don't think it's a good movie the way that like most of the other movies that we've already talked about are like good movies are like well-made well-directed yeah movies i watched dracula and i was kind of disappointed that i'm like this isn't really good it's fun but it you know it would be it could be a lot tighter i mean no, for one nosferatu totally eats this movie's lunch both in <laughs> yes. terms of like adapting dracula the story and also just for being, like, genuinely creepy and, like, creating an atmosphere and, like, all, yeah. th- all those things. I think this movie feels, even if I hadn't read that it was based more on the stage play, I would be like, this is based on the play, right? Because it's, like, it feels so stage-bound. I suppose you know, so. In a way yeah. that a lot of, it feels like it, this movie suffers from so many, like, early talky problems. Even just, like, bad audio recording at times. Mm-hmm. So much of this movie takes place in, like, mansion living rooms. Yeah. Yep. Much like a stage play would. And so much <laughs> happens off screen, too, to the point where I'm, I got annoyed. Where I'm like, show us something cool. I don't want to be stuck yeah. in this dumb mansion living room the whole movie. So there's that whole cool opening, right, where Renfield goes to the village and meets Dracula in his castle. And there's cobwebs everywhere and bats and spiders and spooky stuff. And that part is pretty good. Probably the best part of the movie. And then we get the, right, we get the boat to London. Once we get to London, I feel like this movie really starts to suffer from the staginess of it all. One, because I think a lot of the other actors in this feel very, like, British stage actory, which isn't, Mm -hmm. I guess, is a weird complaint to make. But it's like, they don't really feel like they're doing film acting. Yeah. I mean, especially with all the kind of standing still and staring, you know. Yeah, I think, I think Bela Lugosi comes across well he's not doing a lot he's letting his like presence do most of the work Mm -hmm. which is fine because he has a lot of presence to go around so it works i think dwight fry is really good and i think the guy who plays van helsing is really good i think those three actors feel like they're actually putting in performances my kind of skewed understanding of frankenstein i was like okay wait so van helsing isn't hugh jackman uh, like action, action guy. Yeah, he doesn't like a big hat and a crossbow and a sword. <laughs> I was genuinely surprised. I thought that's what Van Helsing was. Yeah, no, Van Helsing is in pretty much every other instance an old uh, uh, Scandinavian man, as he is in this. 
But like Helsing, Van Helsing is such a metal name, you know? It is. It certainly is. Uh, have you seen the Francis Ford Coppola Dracula? Yes, but a very, very long time ago. I don't. Did you watch it at my house? It. I did. Yes. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I remember not liking it that time that we watched it because that movie is just so bonkers. I feel like it was like I couldn't reconcile the like different tones and things like that. But it's mm-hmm. one of my favorite movies now. I think that movie. Rules. Okay. Um, and uh, Anthony Hopkins, who plays Van Helsing in that, is great. That's my favorite Van Helsing. Yeah, I, I was, I was, I felt let down by this movie a bit by how much it, I yeah, didn't really feel like it. It holds up. It feels very, very stagey. There's, there's so many places where I'm like, you could have shown a cool. <laughs> there's a part right where like Dracula attacks someone and like runs off, and uh, Jonathan Harker sees that and he's like looking out the window and he's like, oh look, a big wolf. Look at it run away. I'm like, oh, you could show us that, but. You know, or or anything cool right now. But no, we're just stuck in this living room for like, you know, 70% of the movie. Uh, that was another thing that I didn't know about was that Dracula can turn into a wolf. Oh, he can turn into all kinds of stuff. Wolf, smoke, bat. I thought he was just a bat guy. <laughs> yeah, he's got he's got different forms. This It's kind of funny. I, I don't know why, uh, but like this movie really focuses a lot more on him being a wolf guy than a bat guy. It's just they only show the bat. stuff, yeah. Um, well, it's also like, well, he like can kind of control animals, too. Like, he can kind of... Wolves kind of follow his bidding, it seems, also. Mm-hmm. Before we are done talking about this, we would be sort of remiss in, in not mentioning Spanish Dracula. Of course. One of the more... Well-known things about this movie is the fact that there is there is two of them. <laughs> yes, although we only we only watch the English language version. Yeah, I definitely want to see the Spanish one though. But uh, yeah, so you know they built all these sets, uh, and some of the sets are quite cool. I will say, especially the castle. They filmed an English version uh, during the daytime, and then mm-hmm. with an entirely different cast and crew, they used the same sets and then filmed a Spanish version at night. Mm-hmm. And there are kind of different aspects of it. It's a bit like, it's a bit sexier. Um, and like different characters right. have different, um, there are different people who are kind of have more pronounced performances in the movie. And yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm quite, quite curious to see yeah. it. And it's just like such an interesting thing to watch two people take a simultaneous stab at the same movie. Yeah. And also apparently the Spanish crew would watch the rushes that were shot during the day and be like, well, we can, we can do better than that. Right. <laughs> like they would, they would see what the English language crew would do and then try to like one up them. I mean, that, which that bodes well for the Spanish version. From some of the, my, the impression I get having not watched the entire Spanish version of it is that some things definitely are better. Like there's a lot more camera movement in the Spanish one. And there's some like performance things. Like there's a bit where Van Helsing shows Dracula a mirror and he sees that he has no reflection, and he, it freaks him out. And so he, like, in the Bella Lugosi one, he, like, slaps it out of his hand. In the Spanish one, he, like, smashes it with a cane, and, it, like, pieces go flying everywhere. And that's the sort of thing where they're like, yeah, let's, like, let's jazz it up a bit. Let's get it a bit <laughs> a bit more intense. I'd really like to watch the full Spanish one, but we didn't do that for this episode because we had a lot of other movies to watch. I read that Todd Browning didn't really like making talkies. Like, he... he 
enjoyed doing silent movies more. And so maybe that's just a, a product of him sort of not really adapting to a, a sound movie that well. There's long stretches of this movie that have no music or sound to them at all. Mm-hmm. Like no dialogue, no sound effects. It's just silent. Truly silent. It happens enough that it started to annoy me. <laughs> like there's places Which... where it, it's building atmosphere and it's it's good just to like have the sound cut out and just to have some real tension build in that silence. But then there's other times where I'm just like, did they not record any sound for this or like put footsteps over it? It's a it's a movie that that suffers from not having a score. Uh, I think oh, that yeah. if it had a, a, a so. Halloweeny score, then yeah. it would um, it would help the movie a lot. Uh, and um, there is on the Blu-ray there is a score that Philip Glass wrote for the movie, yeah. uh, which I'd, I'd also be curious to watch that version. Yeah, I listened to part of it, and it seems cool. Like it, it sounds like Philip Glass score, but it's like appropriately spooky. <laughs> spooky Glass. Todd Browning was. We'll probably talk more about him. And about this aspect of him later with his his other famous movie Freaks, yeah. but he was like a he was like a circus guy. He like came up in like vaudeville and the circus and like doing spooky shows in the circus. And uh, another fun bit is that uh, some of the sound effects of this movie were done by Jack Foley himself of Foley Artist. Whoa! Fame. Like the guy that in you know that Foley Artistry is named after. Oh my god. Oh my god. It is also ironic that I think this movie needs way more Foley in it than it does. (laughs) Not enough Foley. (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, Dracula, very iconic, very famous, super influential. I don't really think it holds up that great, Mm -hmm. personally. But uh, people liked it when it came out. It did very well. Um, This movie is... So the earlier Universal monster movies that we had talked about, the like Phantom of the Opera and uh, Hunchback... The Lon Chaney ones were produced by Carl Lemley, who was the head of Universal. And by this point, his son, Carl Lemley Jr., was working at Universal. And Carl Lemley Sr. famously did not like horror movies. He was like, horror, not a fan. All this monster stuff, blech. I'll, I'll make a, a Quasimodo <laughs> picture, but like, it's more about the architecture and the all that. It's not like a but, whole Moto picture, it's just a quasi one. You know? Right. Lemley Jr. loved monsters and spooky stuff. He was all about that. (laughs) So he was like, I want to make more monsters. And so he was like the main producer behind this movie and Frankenstein. Mm -hmm. This movie did really well. And so they were like, what's what's the next most spookiest thing we can do? Frankenstein. And so uh, initially, Frankenstein was going to be, I mean, it it is another Carl Lemley Jr. spook him up. Um, but it was originally going to be directed by Robert Flory, who did um, the Life and Death of the Hollywood Extra short. And, and was involved in the Marx Brothers, in Animal Crackers, yeah. right? Or not Animal Crackers, the Coconuts. The Coconuts, yeah. So he was going to direct this initially. I'm not sure exactly why he left. But then Bell Lugosi was even announced publicly as playing the creature. And they like did makeup tests with Bell Lugosi, which were apparently like a lot like the Golem from the golem um but that didn't work out and neither of them ended up making the movie bella Gosi ends up in later universal's frankenstein movies as a different character but um so they got james whale 
who was a sort of respected, who had uncredited directed all the sound scenes in Hell's Angels. Yep. They got, uh, he apparently just like saw um, Boris Karlov like on the lot and was like, that guy looks, looks spooky. Like put him in the movie. <laughs> Cause yeah, similar to Bela Lugosi, like uh, Boris Karlov in this is like, goes beyond just like movie character iconography. It's just like, the Frankenstein, the design of the Frankenstein monster in this movie is like, it's it's like you could throw, you could put a picture of, Fran- of the monster from this movie in like, to like a tribe in the Amazon. And they'd be like, Frankenstein, I know what that is. <laughs> and um, and yeah, it's not, it's as far as I understand as someone who hasn't read the book, uh, it is not really that in line with how the Frankenstein no. creature is described. Uh Particularly like the square head and the green skin and the bolts in the neck. It's all, yeah. it's all, and the, like the whole, the bolts are because of this like electricity angle that was added in, in the mm-hmm. movie. And, but it's, it's iconic. It is yeah. the image of Frankenstein. And a- even beyond that, it's like the image of like Halloween and like spooky, scary stuff in general almost. Like, yeah. This and Dracula both are like, are like so ingrained in like Halloween iconography. Mm-hmm. I have read the book Frankenstein. I think this is a pretty so I like Frankenstein, the '30s movie more than Dracula. Mm-hmm. I think it's a better movie. I think this movie is a pretty bad adaptation of the book Frankenstein, which is very different. Doesn't need to be faithful. I right, and it's but it's it's wild almost how much like. This movie has, like, completely supplanted the book in terms of what, like, the popular understanding of what right. the story Frankenstein is even about or, like, what is in it or anything. Mm-hmm. Boris Karloff in this movie has got, you know, yeah, the square head, the bolts. He's big. He is mute. He doesn't speak. He just kind of uh, growls and moans. Uh, he, walks, he walks stiffly. He has, like, the brain of a child. He has an abnormal brain, as is, you know labeled in the movie a bad guy brain that according to brain phrenology is not yeah. wrinkly enough uh, <laughs> right. so, so so it's a it's a murderer bad guy brain but the the creature in the book is like not that at all he has long flowing hair and uh learns to speak after like a couple of weeks and ends up being uh uh very eloquent and is more of a, like an intelligent it, like, the creature is scary in the book because of how, like, smart and determined he is. And that he's like, hmm. I'm going to ruin your life, Frankenstein, for creating me. And That's cool. Yeah. The book, I was, like most people, I was like, oh, yeah, Frankenstein. It's like, a eh, doctor makes a monster, monster goes nuts, and, like, whatever. And then reading the book, I was like, oh, there's, like, this is so good. There's, like, so many layers to it. It's, like, such a good story. I do feel like... I. I blame maybe this movie a little bit for like making people think that the Frankenstein story is like a little bit more simplistic than it kind of really is. Mm-hmm. But I do like this movie. I'd seen this one before a couple of times. It was actually, I watched the ending of it on TV. It was playing on Svenguli when I was visiting my parents recently. So I watched some of it there. This is, yeah, this is a more enjoyable movie than Dracula. The acting is not good in this movie, I don't think. Uh, I, I, I mean, Karloff's good, but like, yeah. I think that the, the line deliveries, like, 
they remind me of the line deliveries that I did when I was 12. In, in. <laughs> <laughs> I think that, yeah, this it has a lot of the same problems as Dracula. It still feel it is, again, based more on a stage adaptation than the original book. Mm-hmm. And again, a lot of it takes place in like mansion, manor house, living rooms. Yeah, less of it, I think. More of this movie takes place in the actual castles. I I like this movie, but I had a thought when I was watching it of that that Young Frankenstein is a better movie than than this. Oh, it for sure <laughs> is, like unquestionably, I think. But we'll get. I want to talk more about Young Frankenstein in a minute. Okay. The opening of this movie. Is how every movie should start, which is a man tuxedo <laughs> comes out and warns the audience of how scary the movie is going to be. <laughs> I want every movie to have that of like a a, just a, a man in tuxedo walks out from behind a curtain and is like, "This movie you're about to see, fucking kicks ass." Like, <laughs> Mis- get ready, Mister Carl Lemley would like you to know that this movie it's a it's a creepy one. Hide, yeah, hide, hide, hide your eyes, boys. Yeah. <laughs> Frankenthumb parodies this bit perfectly of like the guy in the tuxedo coming out i don't know if you're familiar with frankenthumb i have seen frankenthumb also at your house uh i don't i don't remember that part of it uh my memories of of thumb wars are a little bit yeah. clearer uh i i did think of a treehouse of horror that did this i did uh, unfortunately well. see i saw probably saw that treehouse of horror and frankenthumb before i saw this movie which is a danger that everyone watching old movies comes up treehouse of horror really like kind of i don't know it might be a bad thing for the world and just how it (laughs) how it like ruins horror movies it perfectly parodies too many things and so then it ruins them for people who haven't seen them one of my beefs i love the simpsons don't get me wrong but shortly before seeing the shining for the first time i watched (laughs) the shinning and that scene where Jack Nicholson is making all those funny noises while he's chasing Wendy up the stairs or creeping up the stairs past her, it borders right on the edge of silly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and because a lot the, of the Simpsons, does. Yeah. yeah, because the Simpsons pushes it just a little bit further, it yeah. makes it so it's very difficult to actually enjoy The Shining. <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, I'm pretty sure I saw The Shining before I saw The Shining also. I don't think it ruined. I didn't watch it, like, directly before, though. Yeah, Alamo put it in the pre-show of bad, The Shining. No, bad. Which don't is, do it. Yeah, yeah. I, di- I very much disagree with that. But uh, back to Frankenstein. Uh, the opening credits of this movie are kind of fun because it, it says, for the credits for the monster, it just says question mark. Yeah, that's good. Ooh. I like that. They make They make a whole thing about the reveal of the face of the monster. It's hidden for a long time. Yeah, and it's a great reveal. Yeah, yeah. But then we, we get into the, the story, and uh, we meet uh, Dr. Frankenstein, who's creeping around the graveyard to steal body parts, and his faithful hunchback assistant named Fritz. Yeah. Because that is actually what that character's name is. It's only parodies that have attached the name Igor to it. Whoa. Um, as far as I can tell, because there's a different character in later Universal Frankenstein movies named Igor, spelled with right. a Y, that Bela Lugosi played. Right. But he's not he's not a lab assistant and he doesn't have a hunchback. Huh. And I think at some point all Frankenstein movies were parodied enough they were like, Who's that weirdo that's with him? Igor? Yeah, with the hunchback like they became the same character. And so now it's like Igor is his hunchback assistant, even though that's not actually what his name is. And that's in like huh. that's in the movie Van Helsing. There's a hunchback named Igor that's in the movie Victor Frankenstein. 
where Danny Radcliffe plays Igor, who gets his hunchback removed, and then he's just handsome Danny Radcliffe for the rest of the movie. <laughs> but I think that's that's such a weird phenomenon, right? Where like a a character's name just changed through like cultural os- osmosis stuff, mm. you know. So Frankenstein and, and Fritz are uh, going to the gallows, going to the the um, the graveyard, stealing bodies. Frankenstein sends Fritz to his old college to steal a brain. He's like, oh, no, the, we need a brain. We need a brain. Um, speaking of acting in this movie, Colin Clive plays not Victor Frankenstein, Henry Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. Why they changed his name, I have no idea. They're <laughs> like, Americans can't sympathize with a guy named Victor. He needs to be Henry. Colin Clive is very theatrical and over the top in this movie. But I yeah. do kind of enjoy his performance because of how, like, mad scientist he is again it's another like thing where this movie influence is so influential where it's like oh yeah mad scientist kind of comes from this movie a little bit yeah and you know this movie lifts some of the imagery of the mad scientist laboratory from metropolis oh yeah yeah but this is the mad scientist laboratory that you think of when you think of mad scientist laboratory and you know talk about something that's in montages uh, yeah, <laughs> this guy, it's alive. which is the best thing that he does in the movie, for sure. It's yeah. like, it's alive. It's alive. It's alive. Yeah. He chews the shit out of that line. <laughs> he says it so many times and each time it's like, he's going bigger and bigger with it, but it works. Like he's, oh, he's yeah. like frenzied and he's like losing his mind. Cause it's like his entire life's work has led up to this. And it's like, he has created life. Colin Clive has this very sort of like aristocratic English accent, which I think, I don't know, works for the character for me, I think, where people are like, you're, you can't do this. You're mad. And he's like, mad, am I? <laughs> and this is crazy, am I? I think he says. I think this is a, another situation of an American movie that just does, you know, it's supposed to be set in Germany. They're calling each other yeah. Herr Frankenstein, but they replace everyone's English. <laughs> yeah, they replace the the foreign accent with an English accent, yeah. which is a uh, which is a storied thing in film history for sure. Also, kind of funny that Fritz is played the Hunchback is played by uh, Dwight Fry, who plays Renfield in Dracula, and they were just mm. like, we got another weird little guy in this movie. Who do we have? <laughs> Dwight Fry just became the go to for playing weird little guys, I guess. I think he did, like, he did become, like, typecast of, like, you have to play a weirdo and everything now. <laughs> and then, similarly, Frankenstein's old professor, Dr. Waldman, is played by Edward Van Sloan, who plays Van Helsing in Dracula, hmm. who might as well be the same character. Yeah. You could easily have been like, oh, yeah, his old professor, Dr. Van Helsing, and then make it a, a you know, a sort of a... Um, crossover they did they really if they really were trying to like uh do their dark universe here which they get to like universal monster movies do cross over eventually and are part of like one of the earliest examples of that like shared universe across like a ton of movies thing Mm -hmm. uh yeah the first first example being of course uh um was it foxy grandpa The first comic book movie, the second comic book movie, technically. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, I guess, yeah, it's not a crossover. It's just there were three Foxy Grandpa movies. Right, right, yeah. The first cinematic universe, the, yeah. fo- the Foxy Grandpa. The, F- the FGCU. <laughs> <laughs> Eventually, you know, he zaps the Frankenstein with lighting, with lightning. Um, 
he's a Frankenstein. Get over it. He is a Frankenstein. <laughs> Dr. Frankenstein creates a Frankenstein yeah. played by Boris Karloff. It's like how a father, a father creates a son that also has his last name. I am a, I'm a Frankenstein. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's, he is, he is creature Frankenstein. That is his name. I mean, speaking of that, this movie does like some interesting stuff with, uh, I don't know, it being his son, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. They call, they call the monster young Frankenstein or the young Frankenstein uh, mm-hmm. as, as sort of like a, um, oh wait, do they call the monster or they call it? No, no, no. They're calling, they're calling Henry. They, young, yeah, they're calling young okay. Frankenstein because it's like, because we meet his dad, the Baron. Yeah. Baron Doofus Frankenstein. He was like, ah, I say, uh, uh, bring people back from the dead. Uh, uh, frightfully <laughs> preposterous notion. Specifically, it's like, uh, yeah, it's, he, he wants to create life. And I had this moment when I was watching the movie, uh, which is a very, like, high school, <laughs> high school <laughs> English moment where I was like, Wow, the man's using a lot of uh, technology, and and he thinks he's uh, he's a, 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 he's akin to a god for doing something that a woman does naturally. Uh, I mean, you're not creating wrong. life. I wonder uh, who wrote the story Frankenstein. <laughs> Was it maybe a, a moody teenage girl? You know, I uh, one thing about that that uh, kind of irked me is that when. In the opening credits... Oh, yeah, her screen credit is Mrs. Percy Shelley, which yeah. is some bullshit. Yeah. There's the doctor, there's the dad, there's Dr. Frankenstein's uh, um, fiance Elizabeth, who is in the book, and his best friend, who gets renamed to Victor in this. And they're like, oh, we're worried about him, so we're going to go to his creepy castle during a rainstorm and confront him about it. So they get to witness the creature getting brought to life. Mm-hmm. Uh, the castle is the set for the castle is and like the laboratory is amazing and is very yeah. feels very expressionist influenced. For yes. Sure. Yeah, they, they definitely get. Yeah. Frankenstein or Dracula is a bit more like classic stately gothic Halloween where there are some shots in this that are like genuinely like this looks like it's from Caligari. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, this the sets in this are so good. I, I love them to death. And they create such a great atmosphere and mood. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, yeah, we get our, our great, iconic, it's alive moment. And then Dr. Waldman is sort of having an argument with Frankenstein about, like, the the ethical implications of what he's doing. Which is, I do like this scene. It's very talky, but it is sort of like, it's getting into kind of bigger thematic ideas behind it a little bit. Mm-hmm. And then we get the big reveal of... Uh, Boris Karloff as the creature, like, stepping out into the light. And uh, we get a nice little, like, three-shot, like, punch-in, where it's, like, each shot's getting, cutting closer to his face. Hmm. Um, and, yeah, Boris Karloff, he's he's real good. He's real spooky and also has a lot of uh, pathos in this movie. Yeah. Uh, his performance feels very post his performance and what he is doing in this film feel very post the golem oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. in the way that he kind of hobbles around and is you know a a a created creature um Mm -hmm. and then also the the golem has um a scene where uh he's nice to a child Mm -hmm. uh 
and there there's a there's a nice heart inside of this violent creature yeah uh, and then he but in Frankenstein he just accidentally kills her <laughs> the, also the the abnormal brain thing that is so famous from young Frankenstein is in this movie right where it's right. just like there's a normal brain and an abnormal brain and Fritz picks up the normal one and then he gets scared and he drops it. Whip! So he just picks up the other one and runs away. Yeah, he says, Presumably, darn, a perfectly good brain wasted. Exactly. Presumably, Dr. Frankenstein never checked the the giant label on the jar that says abnormal brain. But... No, but, like, he also, you know, he told him to take the brain, but he, like, didn't... He made everything else out of criminals. Like, he didn't... <laughs> like, well, he didn't yeah, seem just, like, to care. Whoever was around. Yeah, yeah. He didn't seem to care about it. I think. I think it actually like hurts this movie thematically by being like, oh, the creature is this way because he had a, a criminal brain that makes I him see, violent. Yeah. I, I mean, think the idea of just like, this is a bad idea to build a person out of dead body parts and bring it to life and then treat it poorly because you're afraid of it. I don't know. I, I think it, it yeah. kind of undermines a lot of what's strong about the book and I think what is just like kind of inherent to the Frankenstein story by mm-hmm. being like, oh, if they just put a, a nice brain in there, it would have been fine. Well, it, it gives it a very eugenicist angle, which yeah, is Yeah, yeah because Dr. Valdeman is like, as you see here, these these brain lumps are different from these brain lumps. and like Right, and it's like he, he Frankenstein has an evil destiny because he has an evil brain. Yeah. And... Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think that something that could have been a little stronger, and maybe it was sort of implied in the movie, is that, like, literally the minute that Frankenstein, that the Frankenstein, you know, becomes alive, uh, Igor, sorry, Fritz, is... Uh, <laughs> See? It's uh, so ingrained. It's he's like, like oh, Igor, that guy. instantly abusive toward Frankenstein. Yeah. I'm just gonna call him Frankenstein. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, he's, like, instantly just horrible to him. He sees that he, like, doesn't like fire, so he's just like, ah, I'll put some fire in your face. How do you like yeah. that, you know? Yeah. And Fritz th- is a bit of a sadist around the creature, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's just, there's a lot of cruelty in this movie. Mm. Uh, and, and, like, senseless cruelty, I think. Including, like, from Fritz, from Dr. Frankenstein, uh, and, from, and from the angry torch mob, who yep. are... An iconic, classic Torch Mob. Yeah. The original <laughs> Torch Mob, even though yeah. they've been in tons of silent movies already. We've talked at length about many other Torch Mobs, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there's... We mentioned the, yeah, the scene where um, there's the absurdly adorable little girl who's like, I have a little kitten and flowers. And it's like, hee, hee, hee. And it's like, the, the most, like, cartoonish vision of, like, childhood innocence possible. And then she immediately befriends the creature who's escaped the castle after being abused and, like, Dr. Baldwin was going to kill it with, like, euthanasia. And then he kills Baldwin and escapes. But, uh, and then he runs into the little girl and the little girl's like, come, come play with me by the river. And they're throwing the, uh, the flowers, the petals into the river and they float and that delights both of them. And so then the creature picks up little Maria and chucks her into the river also, and she drowns. Um, he doesn't and then know any better. Yeah, it's a, but it's like, uh, he's like, he, he's been alive for what, like 48 hours at this point? Like, he doesn't yeah. understand what would happen, you know? He does seem prone toward violence because he has an abnormal brain. 
And then but, he, <laughs> but it's like he's immediately feels bad and afraid when that happens and like doesn't right. know what to do about it. And so just runs away. I think that's like, it's one of the more famous scenes from this movie. I think it's, I think it's a good scene. It's good. Yeah. But also having read the book, it's a bit like, so in the book, there's a scene where he saves a girl from drowning and they, and the parents think that uh, he attacked her. And so they shoot at him, which is like to take that and then to be like, yeah, but what if he actually did chuck her into the river? It's like, no, come on, guys. <laughs> it's like, dark and gritty. Like, you know, it needs an introduction that tells you how how upsetting this movie is. So after the the monster escapes, uh, Frankenstein has sort of like come to his senses, senses, and it's like, oh, never mind. I will marry you, Elizabeth. I do love you. I will convalesce in my mansion. And so now we get a lot of uh, mansion scenes, which everyone loves. Of like, let's have a <laughs> bunch of scenes of just people sitting in living rooms. But it does lead to uh, a fun, a kind of a fun scene where uh, they they realize that the creature is on the loose. Someone finds Maria's body. That shot is actually very good. The, the bit where the the dad is carrying carrying Maria's the body through, of through his the streets, daughter, like, yeah, through like a parade that's happening around, and he's just got this like blank stare on his face as he's walking. He knows how to ruin everyone's time and traumatize hundreds of people yeah but it's like <laughs> i'm you taking you down with me <laughs> it's like he's not even thinking like it's like yeah. just the the blank stare on his face is really uh really powerful i think yeah but so then they're like all right the creature's out and about he's doing he's doing murders and so <laughs> doc frankenstein is like elizabeth go in this room and i'll lock you in that'll keep you safe uh which then of course immediately the creature just comes in through the window and there's uh, one of my favorite parts of the whole movie when she sees the creature. Elizabeth does a big ah scream, and then it cuts to Boris Karloff, and he goes Rawr. <laughs> <laughs> He does like a meow growl, which uh, is just very funny to me. Um, <laughs> it it feels kind. It feels like it's kind of intended to be a bit of a punchline, maybe. I don't right, know, he's like he's like mimicking her in a way, a little bit, yeah. Uh, they like busted at the room and Elizabeth is like lying on the, on the bed and Frankenstein is escape. I see. And now I'm calling him Frankenstein. The creature yeah, has escaped. He's Frankenstein. The Whatever. creature is Frankenstein. Uh, Elizabeth lying on the bed reminded me of that, that painting, the nightmare, like the sleep paralysis painting. You've seen that one. Oh, like, the woman and like lying on her yeah. back on the bed and there's like a little demon. Right. Right. On her chest. Um, I don't know if it was intended to look that, like that painting or not, but it has this sort of like Baroque painting look to it. Uh, but Elizabeth is fine. Um, she does get murdered in the book because spoilers for the book, Frankenstein. But uh, so then, yeah, the, the, the mob gets all their torches. Uh, Doc Frankenstein puts on his job purse. They kind of go hunting. Yeah, they all split up and to go in three different torch mobs to... Up into the mountains. Uh, yeah. And then they uh, they chase him into a windmill. Yeah. Which apparently the windmill was a Robert Flory idea to have, hmm. like, the end of the movie take place at a windmill. Because that's not in the play or the book. Another, like, pretty iconic bit. It's like, yeah. For the, sure. The windmill getting set on fire and all that. 
Yeah, they, uh, like, Frankenstein goes up to go and confront Frankenstein. And, <laughs> uh, and immediately, like, like uh, the monster takes Frankenstein, picks him up, and then throws him off of the windmill. And he lands on one of the blades of the windmill yeah. and, like, seems to just buckle on the blade. Very Saruman in, uh, ex- <laughs> in like, extended two yeah. towers yeah. uh it's like oh he's dead clearly yeah and then later he's just alive and i'm like he yeah. just fell like 30 feet and then like broke his back on a windmill yeah. blade like yeah. are you kidding me but anyway uh Be- because before it gets thrown off though there's that great shot where there's like the cog wheel and the oh and they're yeah. both looking at yeah. each other like through the spokes of the wheel great yes that good, was good good like duality stuff of like ah oh, they are the same don't you see uh, but it's also like a really good kind of um, like I don't know, good, the bad, and the ugly, like staring each other down sort yeah, of thing. Very, very much. Uh, yeah, and then they uh, they torch the windmill, and then the the uh, the monster dies. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> well, it is it is a very like pat Hollywood ending, which is not how the book ends at all. Which is like, I guess the monster died because he was bad, and uh, the doctor got to live and get married, and he's fine now. And it's like, no, <laughs> didn't you read this? But hey, it's the famous version. So within the context of the movie, completely ignoring the fact that there's a better book, it's it's a, it's a fine ending, I suppose. Whenever a movie um, is its own thing, I think you must ignore whether a book is better. I think like, yeah, uh, yeah. I think, you know, it, different things can have the same name. Right. Um, and it's 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 kind of so different from the book that it's like. It, it's pretty easy to kind of just let it exist as its own mm-hmm. separate thing. At the end of this movie, uh, they are able to give Boris Karloff a credit uh, because yeah. uh, they do the credit. They say a good cast is worth repeating. Yeah, and, which I, I agree with. Uh, and so they uh, are able to credit him as the creature instead of just question mark. Yeah. So when they're running up and down the mountains, they're on a, a very obvious set, like a back a back lot set with like a painted background of like clouds behind them Mm -hmm. but it's like i don't know i feel like a lot of the stuff in dracula felt very kind of stagey and like that's like a a, i don't know that's a problem in lots of movies where it's like this set looks fake as hell this set does look very fake but it it at least is like kind of painterly like it it feels more like an expressionist set than like Mm-hmm. I mean, it feels like a like a Hollywood matte painting. There, there's some good yeah. stuff in the beginning of Dracula, like that too. Dracula has got some amazing matte paintings in it. Yeah, especially right at the beginning. Uh, uh, speaking of Dracula, both the the makeup for both Dracula and Frankenstein was done by Jack Pierce, who will also go on to do Wolfman and the Mummy, and it's just like he's like the monster makeup guy. After Lon Chaney, like Lon Chaney did all his own makeup. Mm-hmm. Jack Pierce did like. All the like classic 30s and 40s monster makeups, and it's I don't know, it's just wild that like that one guy did that, and now it's like every Halloween decoration is like based off of his work. <laughs> it's yeah, wild. and Universal copyrighted the Frankenstein monster design, yeah, uh, yeah. as created by Jack Pierce mm-hmm. uh, for his makeup, and uh, so. Not only is this like a kind of different interpretation of what Frankenstein looks like, but it is the proprietary one. Yeah. Which is, like, I wonder how good they are enforcing that. Because, like, does Universal own, like, Booberry? 
Like, I feel like there's, I see that design so much in everything. I don't right. know how litigious they are about it. I guess they did, I'm not thinking of like newer Frankenstein movies, and most of them are universal. So, it's like the the, the monster in the movie Van Helsing, that's a universal movie. Definitely owes a lot to the Jack Pierce design. Um, Van Helsing has a uh, Frankenstein in it? Yeah, don't you remember? That's like a huge part of the plot. I do. I really just don't remember much about. <laughs> um, I mean, it's not a great movie, but it's fun. I don't know. It's silly. I want to watch Van Helsing again, uh, and I want to watch. Do that. Do uh, that for our decade review episode. Just watch Van Helsing. <laughs> <laughs> I want to watch uh, the Bram Stoker's Dracula Coppola one. Yeah, the Coppola one's real good. Pretty like a couple weeks before I saw Frankenstein, I watched uh, Flesh for Frankenstein, the Andy mm-hmm. Warhol. Uh, produced movie, uh, and then right after Frankenstein, I watched Jurassic Park. So I was, uh, <laughs> I was having a on that day. I was having a um, a bit of a what has science wrought kind of kind of day. But also watching Frankenstein while being informed by the contents of Flesh for Frankenstein was was quite a, quite a time. Mm. Uh, Flesh for Frankenstein is. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Flesh for Frankenstein is a 70s movie uh, starring Udo Kier as Victor Frankenstein. That is, uh, what if we made Frankenstein horny? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's great. It's so, it's so good. <laughs> I did watch uh, this Frankenstein uh, during a rainstorm, so that felt appropriate. This had, uh, like a lot of pre-code movies, this, had, this was censored on re-releases in like the later 30s and 40s. Notably, they took out the line where Dr. Frankenstein says, uh, now I know what it's like to be God. <laughs> uh, and they're like, no, can't have that in there. People can't know what it's like to feel like God after creating uh, uh, a horrific uh, abomination. <laughs> it's almost like that's the theme. <laughs> yeah, it's almost like that's one of the more important lines of dialogue in this whole movie. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, they deemed it un- unworthy for the American public. Uh, but it was later restored, thankfully. Uh, but that's like, I don't know, that's that's a very common phenomenon with pre-code movies. It's like a couple of lines of dialogue where like little things will get, were like spliced out later on during the Hayes Code. And we're like, only later on someone was like, oh, we found it again. We had to like dig through the archives or like someone had an uncut copy of it somewhere. Yeah. Though sometimes like the censor notes help with the restoration because mm, they mm-hmm. have like very detailed you know <laughs> information about what happens in scenes and in what order and so uh that was instrumental in reconstructing metropolis for example where mm, censor mm-hmm. records good and bad so yeah a couple of real iconic movies this yeah year. uh which was your favorite <sighs> this is tough Mm. I this was a I, this is a tough a tough year. I there yeah. was it's between I think well yeah, it's tough. I the M was the last movie that I saw and I feel like M is far and away the best movie. Mm-hmm. Uh it it it's very complex. It's very it's got very good cinematography and editing and acting. Um and and I respect it a lot and I like it a lot. The unquestioned champion up until I watched <laughs> M 
was Little Caesar. <laughs> I <laughs> I had so much fun with that movie. It is such a blast. It's so corny. It's so it's not it's not corny. It's just like uh it's awesome. The, it the knows gangster, exactly what you want out of it as a viewing audience. Yeah. Little Caesar is everything that I want out of a gangster movie. Everything yeah. that I want. Uh uh so granted that M is the better movie and I probably do like M better as a movie. Mm-hmm. I just I just love Little Caesar. Right, so I'm just going to yeah. say Little Caesar. <laughs> um right, then I I can just say M then. Uh, okay. Yeah, M, 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 I think was the best movie that we watched. But like, I got big shout out to City Lights. I love City Lights. It's it's a great movie. But yeah, M is just like a, a tour de force. Picture. The M is short for masterpiece. Uh, it's actually short for murderer. But yes, that too it can be short for a lot of things. <laughs> and I'm I'm excited for uh, Peter Laurie to go on and have. Uh, an illustrious career playing a little mm-hmm. weirdo along with Dwight Fry. <laughs> the best character actors from this era are the people who are just like, I'm just going to play little weirdos <laughs> from now on. The best character actors ever are, are little weirdos. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. But uh, yeah, this was a, this was a very fun year of movies to watch. Mm-hmm. There were a few that we did not, uh, did not that we wanted to watch that we did not get to because time is a thing. That should be the name of this podcast. <laughs> Time is a thing. Yeah. Or we didn't watch this because time was a thing. <laughs> Just, I don't know. Time is a thing. Yeah. Time. But um, there were there was a lot of good stuff, definitely. Yeah. And more good stuff coming up soon. Yeah. More uh, more spook-em-ups coming more up. More Todd Browning. More, um, more... more gangster movies. We've got Scarface. Original Scarface mm-hmm. next episode. So that should be fun. This, uh, this whole town is... Uh, I don't know. Is a cookie just waiting to get eaten? Is <laughs> Salt Down's one big chicken waiting to get plucked? <laughs> which is the TV edit, which I love. <laughs> so look forward to that next episode. <laughs> we're, t- yeah. we're talking non Pacino Scarface. Um, instead, Howard Hughes produced and Howard Hawks directed. And we got Freaks and we got. Uh, yeah. We got uh, uh, Le Vampire. We got The Mummy. Is The Mummy 32? That's yeah, funny. man. All right, OG mummy. We're we're in the stacked pre-code era, so yeah. Join us next week, next episode for 1932. Thank you all for listening, and uh, and you know, follow us on stuff. So, yeah. Glenn, yeah, follow us on stuff. Come on, yeah. leave a comment. There you go. We've been getting we've been getting a lot of if, comments if on you YouTube. If you're angry nice. at our show because we don't like the Marx Brothers, <laughs> uh, let us know. I like how we're small time enough that we can call out randos in our, in our, in our YouTube well, we, we comments. Only, we only get like four comments an episode, so yeah, it's yeah. easy to it's easy to uh, four four is a lot. Four. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. So please, please comment. Please, please. comment. <laughs> please clap. Uh, yeah, please clap. And with that, uh, Glenn. I'll see you next year. See you next year.